And now, broadcasting from a device built by a teenage genius using leftover parts from an erector set, Sci-Fi for Me is live from the bunker. That's right, and I may regret it. Maybe. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Welcome everybody. We are live from Studio A here where we control the internet, as you can see. And yes, this is a new camera angle. I still have the other camera angle, but I can't show off as many monitors with that one. Welcome to the program, everybody. My name is Jason Hot. I'm the editor here at SciFiForMe.com, which is where all of the main stuff happens right now. Uh, all of the all of the reviews and and some news articles every now and again get posted over there. So go go check that out. Uh, we're not back yet. I have to I have to admit. Let me. Uh, let me get in real close here, folks. Well, first of all, hang on. Before I do that, let me let me say hi to people who are listening to this as a podcast. It is on a number of different platforms, different players. The live chat's open on YouTube and Rumble and Odyssey, where we have crossed the threshold. 500 plus subscribers over there, followers. <coughs> you mean... So happy to have all of you with us. We've got listeners in uh, Russia, Germany, Japan, China, Argentina. Good to have all of you with us. <coughs> Excuse me. Why is it I go on the air and then I start to get crap in my throat? <coughs> but that's okay. I can deal with that because I am a professionally trained broadcast specialist. And it hit me this morning. I realized this morning. Mrs. Boss, I don't know if you realize this. I I have not. You and I have not talked about this. I started in radio in August of 1988. August of 19... Oh, hey. Yeah. August of 1988. Do you want to know what I was doing in August of 1988? Not particularly. Okay. (laughs) Because I... Eh, yeah. But anyway. Yeah, August of 1988, which means I've been doing this for 35 years now. And because I've been doing this for so long, you will never know unless I tell you, and I'm about to tell you. I was feeling a little nervous about Two hours ago. Because, you know, I I practiced last night, and I know that there are some things, you know, it was like, well, you know, make sure that I remember where all the buttons are and how everything works and all this stuff. Because, as, as most of you know, I have a lot of stuff here to keep track of this. You see all of these screens here that I've got to, that I've got to work with. All of these buttons I have to push. Plus, Mrs. Boss pushing my buttons. But what? I, I what? am, I am, you would never know that I got nervous this morning because I am a professionally trained broadcast specialist. Highly skilled. I'm good at this. 
most of the time. Until you make rookie mistakes. I, well, you know, the rookie mistakes keep you humble. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh-huh. Keep mm-hmm. you honest. So I've asked Snipe in the chat, says, it doesn't look like you've been doing this for a day over 36 years. <laughs> uh, let's say hi to everybody. Um, uh, in in all the different chats, I see, we see Sci-Fi Snob. Let's start in the YouTube chat. I see Sci-Fi Snob there, Keely Chow there, uh, Stephanie Janicek, uh, Mindy, I see, uh, Mindy's there. I Michael see. Gonzalez is over there. Over in the Odyssey chat, I saw Mazer says he rode Vagamon Live. He's asking, where is your gigawatt generator to power those monitors? <laughs> it is powered by hot air, wishes, and dreams. <clears throat> in the tears of virgins. <laughs> Somebody's tears, I tell you. <laughs> All right. Now, let's start officially with some breaking news couple of different things breaking news let's start we'll start with the teletype here breaking news this uh this news breaking this morning a live action project set in the world of the popular sci-fi video game cyberpunk 2077 so uh so cd project red announcing a deal uh, with uh, Anonymous Content Studios, head of television Garrett Kemble, director of development Ryan Schwartz, and creative uh, chief creative officer David Levine on the Cyberpunk 2770 project. The team has begun searching for a screenwriter for a brand new story set in the world of Cyberpunk 2077. Now, of course, everybody is already uh, imagining that Keanu Reeves is going to be the one to uh, to star as Silverhand because he's in the game. Did he make it out of Lawrence alive? I I was I would assume so. Yes, he and his band were here uh, just uh, forty five minutes from here last weekend at uh, at uh, Lawrence in Lawrence, Kansas, home of uh, University of Kansas, where um, where his band played. Was it that that was the weekend Taylor Swift was here, right? Yes. And then this past no, weekend, no, it was the weekend. Uh, was it Beyonce weekend? Beyonce weekend. Okay, so Beyonce was here at the same time. Keanu Reeves was here, and we'll be talking a little bit, very little bit, very little bit about Beyonce later on. <laughs> Road <laughs> Road Vagabond Life says, "I believe the hot air part." <laughs> Gojira76 also over there in the Odyssey chat. Good to see you as well. Um, so, yeah, so live action Cyberpunk 2077. Keanu Reeves probably will be involved somehow. And he's he's basically kind of taking over everything. I mean, you've got Cyberpunk 2077 in the video games with Keanu Reeves. You've got Berserker, uh, the... Uh, the comic book graphic novel series starring Keanu Reeves, written by co-written by by Keanu Reeves, and going to be adapted as a movie, probably starring Keanu Reeves. You have the John Wick stuff, and is he becoming Tom Cruise? I, well, you see, in 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 the old days, you had movie stars, big stars. And nowadays, not so much. I mean, Harrison Ford, I would say, is a big movie star. Um, Tom Cruise, 
are there are there any women that are that big movie star wise? I I mean, I'm just coming off the top of my head, I can't think of one that's just like an instant movie star. You know that that whole thing. Um, and then you got Keanu Reeves now now doing his thing, and and it hit me the other day. We were talking on Culture Casino show Sunday night. Karate with infinite patience. You should go back and check that out. And I admitted then, and I have admitted before, that my camera shot is off. That's a weird thing. I have well. I have admitted before that I have not seen the John Wick films. I have not either. And my it hit me. It hit me. I realized why I have not seen the John Wick films. I would probably enjoy the John Wick films. I'm told that I would enjoy the John Wick films. But I realize why I have been hesitant to get off the axe and go watch the first John Wick movie. It's because of the dog. It's because old Yeller and I'm like, I, I don't know. I know what happens. I mean, in, con- in, 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 in the abstract, I don't know exactly what happens in terms of the actual story. But I know something happens to the dog. And that kicks off this whole thing. And for whatever reason, I'm hesitant to, to, to pardon the pun, pull the trigger on watching the first John Wick movie. Even though I'm pretty sure I'd probably enjoy it. I will get over it eventually. Maybe, but we'll see. All right. Kayla says, speaking of Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 was good. It was. Speaking of which, um, I don't know if any of you know, but uh, Haley Atwell, who is in that Mission Impossible movie, she posted to Instagram a while back. She just got a new Xbox console with the Porsche labeling and admitted to the world that she's a gamer. <gasps> I know, right? This is this is what? But yeah, here we are. Haley Atwell admitting that she's a gamer. And you know, you know what, you know what we ought to do. Get her and uh, get her Henry because you, you get the. I actually had an idea one time. The I, I had an idea of of a show called The Unexpected Geek, and it would basically be interviews with people that you had no idea that they were fans of of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. You know, people like because for the longest time nobody knew anything about Rosario Dawson being such a geek until she did an interview at one point and did something did part of it in Klingon, and everybody was like. Oh, She's one of us. Well, and then, you know, and we were talking about uh, people in Congress. You have uh, Booker, uh, Cory. Cory Booker. And then the other guy who. Mike Lee. Yeah, did his Yeah, whole did the whole Aquaman thing. Th- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Dana Lash, talk show host. Mm-hmm. Dana Lash is a big gamer. She's a big X-Men fan. She talks about X-Men all the time on her show. And I'm thinking, you know, this is, okay, so we get... We get Haley Atwell and Dana Lash together in a in a charity tournament. Maybe. Yeah. 
Throw t- throw Taylor Swift in there just for gr- grins? Well, she brings ratings. <sighs> I guess maybe. I mean, look at the NFL. We do a do do a do a tabletop a D and D. Michael's is D and D. There's going to be a challenge to that. Can we get for those of you? Well, those those of you who are who are into D and D. Now the movie was fun. The movie was fun. Oh, and and Road Vagabond Life says check out the movie Nobody with Bob Odenkirk. I I have I've seen a good good press about that as well. So I want to. I want to check that out at some point. It's just hard to get invested in anything nowadays from Hollywood. It just is. But but the challenge for the D&D people... <laughs> sci-fi stuff says, I could interview him. No one knows he likes sci-fi. <laughs> the challenge for the D&D people is going to be finding the books. Because Dungeons & Dragons now... Uh, this, uh, this breaking uh, over the uh, last... Uh, this was yesterday. Gizmodo. Dungeons and Dragons will no longer be distributed through Penguin Random House. Now, Penguin Random House is a big heapum distribution outfit. In addition to publishing books, they also distribute books. They distribute comic books. They got they got a few deals now to distribute comic books, and now they are abandoning Dungeons and Dragons. From the article, starting January 1st, 2024, Penguin Random House will no longer be distributing Wizards of the Coast's seminal TTRPG project uh, product, Dungeons & Dragons. The announcement was made via email to various retailers. io9 obtained a copy of this email for confirmation. There is currently a distributor portal live on Wizards' site. With no explanation whatsoever... The email reads, quote, Effective December 31st, 2023, Penguin Random House LLC will cease distributing titles for Wizards of the Coast LLC. End quote. That's it. That also includes a couple of support lines, a link to the distributor portal and the Wizards of the Coast. So so there are other distribution outlets, Alliance, Diamond. I'm really surprised that Diamond is still around. Uh, GTS, Magazine Exchange, PHS, Southern Hobby. So... So there's still going to be ways for, for Wizards to get the books out there. But this is kind of a big thing because Penguin Random House is a big distribution arm. Well, didn't, wasn't there something you read like a little bit ago that had numbers on what's released and actually sold? Oh, that was that was a yeah, that was a couple of years ago where uh, when well, no, when recently. The, no, no, no. It was. Um, No, it wasn't recent because it was part of that whole lawsuit to keep uh, Simon and & Schuster and, Peng- and Random House, uh, all that merger okay. stuff that was going on. And it, and it came out, you know, a lot of titles that are on the New York Times bestseller list sell 10, 12, 15, 20 copies at all. I might have sold more copies of my book than that. Maybe. I don't know. I think maybe I've sold 12. Maybe 13. By the way, I've written a book. Um, should I... Should I tell people that I'm working on expanding that book? I think you Probably not to. today. Probably not today. We won't talk about that today. But anyways, there's another hit to D&D. And it goes into this whole... 
uh, Dungeons and Dragons one thing, D and D one thing. They're trying to get everything online. They're trying to get everything over there to where they can control it a little bit more. They can monetize it a little bit more in ways that probably don't make sense because uh, the people that are running Wizards of the Coast Dungeons and Dragons right now are Microsoft people. And video game people. And video games have been overrun with microtransactions. And that's what they're trying to do with Dungeons & Dragons. They're trying to nickel and dime you to death. In addition to all of the different PR gaffes that they've had over the last year, year and a half now. With the, the new open license and... All of the backtracking they had to do on that. And, you know, it just one thing after another, after another, after Speaking another. of other people who've been in Kansas City. Yes. Oh, I was just saying uh, uh, the post I was showing you the other day online from one of my connections on Facebook with Luke. Guy's at. Guy Gax. Guy Gax. Eh. Yes, Luke Gygax was in town. At the Ren Fair. At the Ren Fair. Um, and I think he and his wife are working on their, their third. I'd have to look this up. Uh, they've been working on developing their own role-playing game uh, that they've been uh, crowdfunding over on Kickstarter. Successfully, I might add. And I, I want to say that they're working on a new one. I don't know. Uh, Michael says, has Watsy stated if they're doing some publishing alternative like print on demand or another publisher? Uh, well, my understanding from the article, Penguin Random House is not the publisher. It, it, they're just the distributor. Wizards of the Coast, I believe, is the publisher. Because if you look at all the D&D stuff, I don't know, where do we have any, where are those Dragonlance books that we've got? Are they on that shelf in the other, in the other room? Uh, Wizards of the Coast, I believe, is the, is the publisher. And Penguin Random House was just handling distribution. So, like, like we do this, we do this book, and we d handle all of the printing. We do. It's kind of like with RJ over at, at Critical Blast. All right, I do a book, I do a magazine, I do a comic book or whatever. I get it all printed. They ship it to me. I send it to him, and he he puts all of the mailing labels on and and sends them out to all of the different places. Penguin Random House was doing that for Watsy. So Watsy sends them the books, and then Penguin Random House splits them up. These boxes go to this retail store. This box goes here. This box goes there. That box goes there. This one there. And they're not going to do that anymore. There are other distribution channels for Watsy, but the biggest one is no longer going to be available. And I would really what that story is because I'm sure there's a story there would have to be a story there's gotta be usually is there usually is speaking of stories here's one <laughs> um Mrs. Boss I'm not sure uh, but this is probably something that um, this is probably something that we don't want to see here because given your proclivity for modifying your ears, <laughs> I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure really that 
should even be doing this story, but I'd here be we more go. scared of you trying to do it. This is the New York Post headline, Elf Ears are the creepy new plastic surgery trend in China. Now, this was published in June. Oh, this was published in June 2021. How did I just see this? Anyway, I don't think that we want this coming here. Do we? Do we really? I don't know. Mrs. Boss, do you want to get your elf ears? Pointy, for centuries, pointy elven ears were viewed by many as an undesirable beauty flaw. Really? Now young people are lining up to get them. In China, many women are getting dangerous plastic surgery to attain elf ears. Most, though, are not striving to look like J.R.R. Tolkien's Legolas or J.K. Rowling's Dobby. These beauty seekers claim that by enlarging their okay, ears, who their wants faces to look like Dobby. I know their faces look <laughs> slimmer and thus more attractive. All right, I'm 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 done with this story. Okay, when's look. foot binding come back? Uh, right. Uh, uh, right. I don't know. All right. Oh, by the way, Keely, thanks for putting Critical Blast link in the chat. That's good. Um. <clears throat> Gojira says, just as interest in D&D goes mainstream, Penguin is rejecting all that built-in cash. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that there's... I don't know that there's a lot of cash in Watsi right now. Um, because D&D, uh, the movie, uh, the Dungeons & Dragons movie, did not, did not do well in the theaters, even though everybody that's seen it liked it. Most, most people that, that have seen it liked it. <sighs> But given all of the stuff that's been going on with Dungeons & Dragons, I don't know that it's the cash cow that you would have expected it to be we years ago. We just like breaking the internet with it. Do what? We just like breaking the internet with it. Well, that's been a while. <laughs> that's been a while. <laughs> I just, you know. We had our, we had our quota. <clears throat> Cam says, no, so much for notification. You didn't get a notification then? You saw the post over on, on Twitter earlier, Cam. Just saying. Just saying. <clears throat> All right, more stories. Let me show you this. Because... Is it relevant? Is like new? It, it is irrelevant. It is new. It is just published. The Fan Activity Gazette over at the National Fantasy Fan Federation. This is edited by Mrs. Boss uh, with a little help from me. Uh, the September issue is available now. TNFFF.org is where you can find this. This is just one of different, uh, one of many fanzines that are published over there. And Mindy took over uh, editing duties for the August issue. We're working on the October issue now. So go check that out. Uh, you will, uh, you will enjoy, hopefully. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe. I uh, mentioned the dot-com over there. I am currently reading the third book in the Books of Alexandria by Jason Nadler. He is a contributor here, uh, but this is the third book in the trilogy, so I'm reading that. The review will be coming soon. Mrs. Boss is working on another book by, by uh, DJ Butler from Ban. So all of that happening. Sci-Fi For Me dot com is where you will find this. Now, let me let me get into a little bit of a thing because everybody is like, are you back? Are you back? Are you back? We're not. We're not back. We're kind of back. Not really back. 
<clears throat> what is this? What is this? I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to address that, Mrs. Boss. Uh huh. I'm not. Uh huh. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that's about. All right. So, I have I have been faced with a dilemma, and. I even have proof that this kept me up at night the other day. Because I have a little app that tells me how long it took me to go to sleep. Two and a half hours I stayed up. Uh, (laughs) Road Vagabond Live. Do Chinese emails get flooded with ear enlargement pills? Spam. It's good. (laughs) Oh. So... So the other night, my, I, I have I have this I have this thought in my head. I'm not, you know I'm I'm going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Do we do a show? Do we not do a show? Do we do we do anything else? And I know we've said we we're done, and we're kind of mostly done. Cam says the lack of life from the bunker has unbalanced my online life. Nobody should have that much of an online life. All right, I yeah, yeah I'll I'll. <laughs> Really, 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 really. So I'm, I'm debating with myself whether to do another show ever. And one of the reasons why it's been such a difficult thing is all of the drama, and I've talked about this before. All of the, all of the neener neenering, all of the infighting, and it's getting worse. What are you people doing? I mean, I could go through a whole list and name names, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm. I'm not gonna dive into that. If the in, of those of you who have been here and and been paying attention, you know some of the stuff that's been going on. And there's factions. There's factions in Comicsgate. There's factions in the Phantom Menace. There's faction in the Star Wars stuff. There's I, I, people are going after each other and stabbing at each other and claw. I mean, the claws are. Out, and I'm sitting there thinking, why would I dive back into that? Now, so far, we have been able to avoid a lot of the drama. We don't get dragged in a lot. However, we have been mentioned a couple of times with regard to Star Wars. But I will make clear, I don't have... A, a dog in the fight with regard to Star Wars anymore. I don't care about Star Wars anymore. I'll report on things that get reported. I will share, hey, here's a rumor. Hey, here's a news item. Here's, I mean, we'll be talking about the Disney stuff today in the second hour. But I don't, I don't, I don't care. And, you know, if I share something from Cameron or if I share something from Stephanie, or I share something from Doomcock, or if I share something from WDW Pro, or I share something from Valiant Renegade, or I share something from Drunk3PO, or whoever, I know that at some point, somebody's going to go, hey, sharing anything from them. I mean, stop. Stop it. We have a common enemy. And it's not Now, with regard to Ahsoka, I'm only going to say this. It was 
boring. Yes. I know Cameron really likes it. I know Stephanie likes it. Okay, you can. I'm not telling you you're wrong. But me personally, just me right here, it's boring. The lightsaber fights were all done in slow motion. That's because Ahsoka can't move her head. I mean, they're moving like they're underwater. It's a Cirque du Soleil thing. I mean, what? No! It should be. And we didn't get that. I know she can't move her head. They they shortened they shortened the things so she could do the stunts in the first place. Yeah, she still can't move her head. No, and and I tell you, Lars Mickelson has always to me Lars Mickelson has always been miscast as Thrawn. You know who I see? You know who I see as Thrawn? Michael Ironside. Michael Ironside would have been a fantastic Thrawn. He's too old now. But he would have been a... That would have been a brilliant piece of casting. And the Thrawn that we're getting in all of this stuff, in the animated stuff and in the live-action Ahsoka, that is not Timothy Zahn's Thrawn. That's a watered-down photocopy of a scan of Timothy Zahn's Thrawn. That's all I got to say about Ahsoka. And I know there are people out there who are like, oh, Star Wars is dead. Star Wars is not dead. It's just in slow motion. Star Wars is broken. Star Wars is broken, but Star Wars is not dead. And I know there are, you know, Echo Base Networks out there and say, we're not going to be covering Star Wars anymore. We're done. There are some things about. Disney Star Wars that are okay. It's hit and miss like everything else. This is why we need to get away from franchises. And we'll talk about this a little bit in the second hour when Cameron and Judah are here. They need to get away from these big, multi-picture, big story universe things. Because if you haven't seen Clone Wars and you haven't seen Rebels, you have absolutely no idea what's going on. You don't need to to watch Ahsoka, but make sure you watch the last season of uh, Rebels. Yeah. I mean, there's... No, no, that's not how you do it. And I'm hoping, I'm going to get, I'm going to get Cameron's take on this, and Judah's going to be weighing in on on the PR aspects of this, but I'm hoping that this strike, the resolution of the strike, has studios figuring out, you know, maybe we could do five... $50 $50 million pictures instead of one $250 million picture. Maybe. I saw news this morning. Kevin Costner's got a Western coming out next year. A two-parter. A two-parter. Excuse me. Wait a minute. No. Make a movie. A movie. A single movie. If you want it to be that long, put in... Well, he's been in movies that long. He was in Silverado. No, 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 no. He was in I, Wyatt Earp. He was in uh, Dances movie. with Wolves. If you want to make a movie that is that long in timing, like, you know, instead of having two, two and a half hour films, if you want to have a three or four hour film. Then you put it on, put it on TV. You make it a mini. So bring back the miniseries. Bring back the intermissions. Bring, no, no, no. If you're going to do, okay, if you're going to do one long movie. 
Okay, fine. Intermission. Yes. You're like, yeah, Lawrence of Arabia, Wizard of Oz, you know when to go to the bathroom. However, if it takes you longer than two hours to tell the story, you're not making a movie. You're making a miniseries or a television series. Or a limited series that we swear we're not going to do a second season on, but, you know. I know. It's just, it's so far. Part one. Part two. No, don't give me part one, part two. Give me one. There are some really great miniseries out there that just tells it all. But what do I know? That's the thing of what the one. When was the last like really good miniseries <laughs> that came out? Uh, Mazer says he's back. Uh, apparently, he's had to step away from it. He says, "What about going to the bathroom?" I come back to the funniest <laughs> quote. <laughs> No guests yet or still to come. Here we go. That presents the opportunity. See, this is why we have people in the audience. And this is what Rush Limbaugh said all of the time. The people who called into the Rush Limbaugh program were there to make Rush Limbaugh look good. Y'all are all here to set up pieces of the show. Rio Linda, so, call us. Mazurus asked the question about guests still to come. Here's, here's what we're doing today. We are testing a format. So, three, oh, Keely says, if I wanted to be let down, I'll watch a Dallas Cowboys playoff game. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, especially since the Dallas Cowboys haven't been the Dallas Cowboys forever. Okay, so so the format that we're testing today, I've mentioned it before. I've talked about this idea. A three-hour show uh, here for, for, the, uh, for the program. Is that why I had to listen to that how many times this morning? Well, hey, uh, just a couple of times because I no, had to that was more than a thing. couple of times. I had to find the thing. Uh-huh. All right, Planet Truth in uh, the Rumble chat test is this thing on? It is. It is. Welcome to the program. I'm seeing some names I haven't seen in the chat before. That's great. That's great. Um. Michael says, Lawrence of Arabia, The Great Race, Ten Commandments for more than two hours. There should not have been made. I said, if you're gonna tell if you're gonna do a movie that long, you can do an intermission. Lawrence, because Lawrence of Arabia did it, Gone with the Wind did it. Yeah, intermission is fine. 2001 did it. But my point is, if it takes you that long, especially now, when everybody has the attention span of a grapefruit. Because of the social media and the internet. That's even too much of a compliment. You, you know, you can't you can't count on your audience to stick with you that long. Because they're young enough that they don't understand what the intermission would be for. It's like, is the movie over? What's what's this thing? In inter intermission? What is that? Oh, we go? <laughs> and then they're like probably Do gone we leave? the rest of the movie. Well, th- <laughs> we didn't see the whole thing. So, uh, so three hours. The first hour is going to be monologues. It's going to be me opining and sharing with you some different things, news items and random reactions and whatnot. The second hour, guests. So interviews, panel discussions, um, that sort of thing. We'll mix it up in the second hour. Uh, today, Cameron Pasha, Judy Engelmeyer will be here. Uh, Paul DeGarabedian is up next uh, because he had to. We had to pre-record his segment, so that's coming next. Uh, and then the third hour is going to be call-in. 
we're going to set the link out so any of you that are watching now, if you're with us live, the third hour we're going to do open line. We're going to see what happens. I don't know. I don't know if this format is going to be something that we continue with or not. Because we're not back. Because we're not back. But this is kind of what we're doing today, just to see, just to see what happens. Cam says, oh, no, I have to go at that point. Well, okay. Um, if you have a mobile device and if you have earphones, you can sneakily stay with us. Gojira says third oh third act okay you're talking about a movie over there um which movie do 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 um oh Sisu yeah I kind of want to see Sisu I want to see that that's way. that that's that one from Finland where he's fighting Nazis oh, okay. with an axe <coughs> hatchet or whatever it's just big stuff by the way <laughs> I was impressed that you almost almost asked. The question I was curious about with uh, when you were talking to Paul yesterday, and you've mentioned it lightly here, with studios, you know, talk, do, you know, instead of making a hundred and fifty, you know, two hundred billion a million dollar movie, making, you know, four fifty million dollar movies or something like that, yeah. and talking about getting away from the big franchises, and I had asked you questions about. Like the horror with the franchises and the, uh, the you know, the little the littler ones, and you had talked to him a little bit, which you guys will hear when he's talking to him about the one-offs. Yeah, versus I think franchises. Yeah, and it's a, it's a good conversation that we've had, and that'll be coming up here in about five minutes. Um, so we'll see. I I don't know. Uh, it's it's in the aftermath of the strikes. It is, uh, I'm not sure how they come back to this because the, the thing is you have writers who are figuring out that this deal is not exactly what they were told it was going to be. And so because of that, they're rather upset. And they're sitting there going, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean we can't do X? What do you mean we got to do this and and the other thing? It's going to be it's gonna be interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, by the way, let me ask real quick. Is my audio, it looks like my audio just took a dip. How does it sound? Is the sound, is the sound okay here? Because I'm, I'm looking at my winky blinkies here and it sounds like it's, it looks like I dropped my levels here a little bit somehow. Um, one man shows his audio sounds fine. Okay. All right. So, all right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. <clears throat> we come back here, uh, with my conversation with Paul DeGarabedian. And then in the second hour, Cameron Pasha and Judah Engelmeyer will be with us. And, uh, that's going to be an interesting conversation. We're going to talk about Disney. And we're going to talk about strikes. Where is and, the stock? Uh, right now, the stock is sitting at $79.90. So they're still at least over 79 Yeah, I imagine that uh, at some point, Mikey's going to have to do a do a live stream, even though he's not a YouTuber. So, Mexican Iron Man. 
Those of you who know, you know. All right, we're going to take a real quick break. We get back. Paul DeGarabedian on the other side of this. Stand by. We have 52 reasons to listen to this podcast, but they may change in six months. Oh, my goodness. That, Jason, is probably, I think, the hardest question you're going to ask. Interviews with writers, filmmakers, artists, and actors. That's a good question, though. That's an interesting question. Question. That's a great question. Count on Sci-Fi for me to be there asking all of the questions. Um, it's another great question. These are all really good questions. Bringing you news and opinion from all over the web. Sci-Fi for me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. So, some of you may know, I get emails on the regular from the different trade magazines, trade publications, Deadline, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, and that sort of thing. And usually on the weekends, we get numbers, box office numbers, ticket sales, and that sort of thing. And imagine my surprise. Because I get the emails this past weekend, and... We've got the new Saw movie that's out, but it's not the top at the box office. We got the creator is out, but it's not the top of the box office. The number one movie, Paw Patrol. <laughs> Paul DeGarabedian from Comscore, senior media senior media analyst. Make sense of this, Paul. What happened this weekend? Wow, I you know it was an interesting weekend with the creator opening, uh, the blind opening, and of course uh, the big matchup, Saw Patrol. <laughs> I didn't make that up, but a lot of people had been throwing that around, thinking, of course, Saw will beat the little pups of uh, Paw Patrol, the Mighty Movie, the sequel to Paw Patrol, the movie. <laughs> so. You know, so the final numbers came in Paw Patrol at 22.764 million and Saw X or Saw 10 at 18.3 million. I think what's going on is we've had a lot of horror movies over the past few weeks and really over the past year. I don't know if there's horror movie fatigue or franchise fatigue for older franchises going on, but you know, we had a, a Haunting in Venice, The Nun 2 was number one for three weeks in a row and then we have saw 10 open and then we're gonna have the exorcist believer opening on the sixth so i think never underestimate family films and family films that used to always do best when they were g-rated because yeah. you know there was a time when i think uh parents thought well if it's pg it's going to be a little too edgy for the kiddies but that actually isn't the case pg is the go-to uh rating for families because it generally means there's content in there that the kids can enjoy, the parents can enjoy. I remember when the first Shrek movie came out, it was at that point seen as kind of an outlier, a little bit edgier than other films, and it was rated PG, and people were like, oh, that raised a few eyebrows, but that's a great rating. But to answer your question, you know, the movie gods are sometimes unpredictable, <laughs> and sometimes what we think should be the number one movie isn't, and sometimes these uh, preconceived notions of what should be a hit or what should be a miss. Uh, it changes our perception, of the industry. And like, and for me, I don't have kids. So it, you know, a film like that isn't really on my radar, right. but I bet, I bet for people who have a bunch of kids who are maybe very interested in going out to the movie theater that they were like, wow, it's going to be a big movie. But for me, like you, I was like, wow. Okay. 
Didn't expect that. Well, and and the reviews are starting to drop for The Exorcist, and they're tepid, I guess you could say. I mean, a lot of this yeah. stuff is like, well, yeah, we've seen all this before. There's nothing new here. Right. And that kind of doesn't bode well for opening but, weekend. But I mean, Jason, they're projecting the biggest opening of the franchise, and yet, yeah. and yet, you know, I'm I'm wondering if we're going to see the same kind of situation that we saw with Indiana Jones. You know what, though, because... Jason, you make you make a great point because you would think with terrible reviews it would hurt a horror movie, but the Nun Two got like horrible reviews and was number one <laughs> for three weekends in a row. So yeah. some horror movies are immune. To that, but remember, the Nun Two was the Nun Two, not the Nun X or the Nun right. Ten or whatever. Right. So I think that may, you know, we've seen that even over the summer with Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible. Some of these franchises that have been around for decades may have got, grown a little long in the tooth in terms of the audience interest in them. But just shows you how unpredictable the box office can be. And horror movies are a go-to genre. I mean, they are profit centers. Uh, we've had some great films uh, over the past year or two from the horror genre, uh, The Black Phone, Smile. Uh, there's there's many others uh, that were really good. And then there have been some independent films that were horror movies that got great reviews. So I love the genre, but it's not a guarantee. I mean, I think everyone like you, everyone thought Saw would come in number one. Here come those little pups. <laughs> to to show their strength at the box office, but that's the power of the family audience. Yeah, uh, to bring in, uh, you know, there haven't really been a lot of family films of late. It's been the Equalizer three, which, by the way, was great. I I saw that in a theater and loved it. Dumb Money's out there. I mean, these are movies. The creator very different. If you try to find a new family film, Paw Patrol was really the only game in town. So well, that played in its favor. Well, let me ask you this too, because uh, I've I've put together uh, as part as part of the work that Mindy and I are doing with the fan uh, fan activity gazette for the for the National Fantasy Fan Fan Federation. May I? Mm-hmm. Well, in, that's a tongue I know, right? <laughs> so one of the things we do is we put together a list of upcoming films for the next month, and I'm doing the doing the uh, the November stuff, and there's a bunch of horror stuff that's coming out in November, and yeah. I'm thinking. At what point does the market get saturated? Because how many how many horror films are out right now and coming out this month? I mean, it makes sense in I October. I mean, it's, it's almost one a week. Yeah, seen you know Five Nights at Freddy's is among them. Uh, Thanksgiving from Eli Roth is a Thanksgiving themed horror movie. Yes, uh, and it just seems like that genre. It seems that audiences have had an insatiable appetite for horror films but at some point they might be like wow i've seen like three horror movies over the past two months <laughs> in theaters give me something different but right now it just seems like and just because saw 10 didn't do as well or it wasn't number one doesn't mean they're going to stop making them yeah because again that movie could still end up i don't know what the budget was but generally speaking you don't break the bank making a horror movie which makes them so desirable for filmmakers and studios to keep putting them out there but there could be fatigue in the genre and if the the reviews on Exorcist, I mean, look, for me, the original Exorcist is an all-time classic, Jason. I'm sure you'll agree. If you go back and watch again for those listening, it's weird because as a kid, I was snuck into a movie theater and traumatized by seeing <laughs> it. Uh, when it, I think it, it came out the day before Christmas, uh, and uh, which was kind of interesting. 
And I remember my older sister sneaking me in and I was like watching the movie like this the whole time scared. <laughs> and if you go back and watch it now, the first, the thing about this movie, just to digress for a second about the original uh, William Friedkin exorcist is that it sneaks up on you. The beginning's actually, I don't want to say boring, but it's slow. It takes, it's a very slow build. Yeah. And you're in Egypt or somewhere. I haven't watched it in a little while, but you're in a foreign land or a far off land, I should say. And then you come back to the city where all this craziness happens within this house. And it's, uh, you know, and, and uh, just an amazing film. So to try and use that brand or remake it, uh, you're really, you know, you don't want to try and repaint the Mona Lisa. I'm just saying now I, I might love the movie. I haven't seen it yet. Full disclosure. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. Well, let me ask you this. Um, is it possible that audiences are responding not just to the fact that these are horror films, but the fact that, that a lot of them are one-offs? They're not, I mean, Saw is part of a franchise. The Nun, too, is part of a franchise. But for the most part, a lot of these horror films that have been coming out have not been part of these big, giant story universes like a Friday the 13th or a Nightmare right. on Elm Street or anything like that. With the with the the writer's strike finally being over, maybe, assuming that they vote to ratify the New Deal, and, and there's a lot of discussion about that, um, could we see the, the studios go back to doing more one-off films and, and sit there and say, okay, well, instead of one $250 million movie, we're going to do five $50 million movies, and we're going to do a romantic comedy, and we're going to do a, a yeah. drama, and we're going to do this. How, how likely is that to start working into the system there, do you it, think? It could. I mean, I, I think the cost-benefit ratio is very important, and especially with horror films that's a key to their success and why they keep being produced. And I know for a studio like Universal has many of the Blumhouse films, but then has Fast X, has comedies. I mean, Universal kind of been a studio that's really mixed it up in terms of that and having originals, but mixed in with franchise films. But then if you look in the indie realm or the specialized film realm, that's where you get some of the coolest horror movies that are really pushing the envelope so and those generally aren't part of any franchise and on a per theater basis do quite well and on a profit ratio basis do incredibly well i'm just concerned that there's just so many horror movies i feel like any genre if it gets like for instance look at paw patrol right there had not been a family film in weeks really not a true pg fan and, and this is animated so left an opportunity open and that's why i think it performs so well if there have been as many family films of the past few weeks as there were and are going to be horror films i don't know the paw patrol would have done as well and if you have kids i imagine going out to the theater is great but it's a big endeavor to go do that take everybody get in the car go to the theaters so it's not like you're gonna want to do that every single week right. so i think it's it's about parsing these out and it seems like it's the Wild West in terms of studios just saying, people love horror, we're just going to keep putting them out there. But at some point, they may hit a wall where they say, hey, maybe we should back off a little bit, but we'll see. Box office numbers being what they are, and the strike happening, and the uh, the, the actor's strike, the writer's strike, theatrically, we still hit a milestone that you predicted 
with the four billion dollars for 2023 and a lot of that of Thank course God. because <laughs> i mean barbie comes out oppenheimer comes out and smokes everybody and you know supplants i mean barbie comes out beats avengers in in box yeah. office records it beats super mario brothers and and oppenheimer has cleared 900 million by now that's looking like it could yeah. be another billion dollar baby yeah what happens in this gap because with right. the, with the because the writers strike creates this 3 month window of nothing happening we can't do pre-production we can't do production we can't do anything now we can again assuming that we approve the deal because there are writers that are miffed they can't even vote on it after striking for so long right what happens in that gap do we do we anticipate 2024 to be another four billion dollar thing or is there going to be a lot of catch-up being yeah that's it you know that's the multi-billion dollar question jason and it's a great one because right now we have enough films to get us theatrical films get us through the end of the year i mean dune 2 moved out but then uh you know taylor swift and beyonce moved in and uh (laughs) we've got enough movies i mean wonka aquaman the marvels hunger games trolls uh napoleon you got a lot of big movies on the way i think we're fine in that sense but if the actor strike doesn't get resolved sooner than later then those actors won't be able to go out and market and promote those films which has its own negative effects or impact on or potentially on the box office but once the this is all taken care of the agreement is whatever ratified or whatever you want to say and then actors get on board luckily the slow moving tanker that is you know that is the uh, movie business. It takes a long time to, you know, write, produce uh, the the films, get them out there, market and distribute them. It could take six months to a year for movies to finally get released in theaters. So I think we're fine. But but next summer, whether we get to four billion, that I mean, we're not as far as I know. There's no Barbenheimer, and we just <laughs> cleared the four billion. Jason, yeah. I was like sweating it on Labor Day weekend. It was really the Friday of Labor Day weekend when Equalizer 3 opened that we passed the $4 billion mark. And I was like, because I really went out of limb in, in late uh, April saying, we're going to hit $4 billion. We barely got there, which shows you the tenuous and fragile nature of the box office. Because if we hadn't had Barbie or Oppenheimer or that combo, yeah. which made them both bigger, we would have been down. Let's say that Barbie and Oppenheimer for the summer, I'm just going from memory, uh, combined, they, earned, they added like almost a billion dollars to the summer box office. If they had done half that, we wouldn't have gotten a four billion. Yeah. We just got there and equalizer kind of put us over the top. Cause often studios don't even release movies on Labor Day weekend. That was a big movie. I think it did 40 million for the four days. So we just made it. So next year, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say, we're going to get to 4 <laughs> billion for 2024 in the summer, but we did do it this year. I think we're going to have a solid fourth quarter this year and I think we get to over nine billion. But right now, Jason, we're actually down fourteen wide releases versus last year at this point. So films opening in over two thousand theaters. Uh, we had eighty some at this point last year. Now we're in the high sixties. It's about it's about fourteen films fewer. Think about that. If each of those made twenty million dollars, that's a lot of money. That's a lot. I'm not of saying money. they all would, yeah. but that's why we're down 
versus 2019 at this point in terms of box office. But we still eked out that $4 billion summer, which was good. So congratulations. You are still, Thank you you. Are still I mean, it's an the expert only thing I can brag about. Right right. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's funny because you mentioned you mentioned Beyonce, you mentioned Taylor Swift. Uh, you know, Beyonce made her big trailer debut Sunday night at her concert here in Kansas City. So that's coming, yeah. Renaissance or whatever. You've got Taylor Swift. Um, this one, I think, kind of slipped under the radar. I didn't even see this. The Talking Heads concert film from 1984. Yeah. It's a restored version. It goes into the IMAX. And the headline here is the biggest IMAX live event screening ever. And that's like an appetizer for for the Swift movie and Beyonce because that's a great film that Jonathan Demme directed. Stop Making Sense. If you haven't seen it. Yeah. rush out and see it immediately or watch it on the small screen, which isn't as good. <laughs> but, uh, it, but you, if you pipe it through your big stereo system, it still sounds amazing. And it just shows you the power of even something, what, 30 years old or 40 now <laughs> stop making. I remember seeing yeah. it first run in a theater uh, back yeah, in the eighties, I believe. And what that's ago. an amazing thing. And it also shows you the power of IMAX to eventize something like that, but that's out there too. So maybe that, and concert movies per se have always been around from the last waltz to Woodstock uh, to Justin Bieber and Michael Jackson. This is it. Um, But, and the event cinema space has done a lot of that. The BTS one-offs, the Coldplay uh, one a week kind of thing following the tour. I think that the, the, the model for that was uh, for the event cinema is that you're not showing these movies opening weekend and then playing them like a regular movie. Now that is going to happen with Beyonce and Swift while I believe they are both on tour, which makes this really unique and powerful in terms of the box office generating potential. Well, and I think it also shows that the theaters are adapting to the fact that the movies are not necessarily bringing in the audience that they need to in order to to clear the gate and all the you know make the money that we need to make i mean you yeah. can only sell so much popcorn and right. and the deals you know whatever deals get negotiated for distribution and the fact that we only have what a 45 day window and then it goes to streaming because of course it does even though yeah. that doesn't make any money now the theaters are sitting there going, you know, post-COVID, post-pandemic, post-everything that's happened in the last three years, we have to do something to survive. And, you know, Fandango stuff has always been around. We've had that for a number of years. You know, the opera and you, you get these these things. Right, Fathom. Yeah, Fathom, Fathom events. events and, and, yeah. But now it seems like it's there's more of an embrace from from NATO, you know, the, the theater yeah. owners. And the distribution companies are looking at, okay, well, we're not going to have as many movies as we could have, or the movies are not going to perform as well as they need to. Yeah. We got to do something different. And it's great. And I think it's, uh, you know, it shows you too how different this is. It's sort of a DIY approach where many of these music, well, not many, but music artists like Swift and Beyonce have the clout to go directly to an AMC and create a deal there sort of going around the studio system, which in this case makes sense because this is kind of a one-off for now. We'll see. This could turn into a big thing going forward, but there's not that many musical artists who could pull this off. The other unique thing about this is normally you set a release date. They they have committee meetings and hand-wringing, like when do we we put this movie on a certain date? Here we have Swift being announced either at the end of August or early September. 
out six weeks later. Beyonce announced basically October 1st. The movie will be out December 1st. Very quick turnaround. It's great for the marketing. And in terms of marketing, the social media presence of these musical artists makes it where if Taylor Swift or Beyonce do one tweet about the movie, that's worth a million impressions on a traditional ad spend or something like that. But it's unique to this kind of movie, this space, this category of film. But the like you said, I mean, and think of the popcorn they are going to sell. One other thing theater owners are going to have to kind of adapt to is that these musical artists are sometimes saying, we want you to dance and sing in the aisles yeah. and probably be on your phone and take pictures. So it's going to fly in the face of all the traditional modes of watching a movie and the protocols yep. and traditions where you're supposed to sit there and be quiet and watch the movie. This ain't a quiet place, Jason. It's <laughs> going to be a very loud place when these movies open. It's uh, it's Rocky Horror all over again, right? The midnight showing? It is interactive, yeah. uh, interactive movies, man. It's pretty cool. Well, and I think too, the other thing with regard to Taylor Swift, I mean, now you've got all of the, all of the chatter uh, with her dating Travis Kelsey of the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. And she shows up at the New York Jets game and Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively are there and Sean Levy's there and Hugh Jackman's there. And oh, wait a minute, is she going to play Dazzler? You know, so now you've got all of that hype in, in yeah. addition to everything else. And, you know, you've got the Marvels. It's coming out in November. Mm-hmm. How much? How much of this chatter about Taylor Swift possibly playing Dazzler in the Deadpool movie m- maybe carries over and gets some people excited about the next Marvel movie? Because Marvel's not doing all that great right now. I know you're right, and and but it's really cool. That's a great point because Taylor Swift, if she does anything, it moves the needle exponentially compared to anybody else. Yeah. Like one tweet one announcement of something i mean look at Bar- barbenheimer and Bar- the barbenheimer phenomenon got a lot of people going to the movie theater who may not have gone or may not have gone to see oppenheimer who for whom barbie was the big draw so now to have taylor swift actually and by the way showing her confidence in the movie theater i mean she could have easily and they've done that she's done this before had str- a streaming release rather than movie theater but i think barbenheimer inspired Swift, Swift inspires Beyonce, but again, there's not that many musical artists who could do this. But yeah, if if and Swift has acted in other movies before in some small roles, but yeah, that that's a huge thing. Just the mere and her following is so massive. I think Travis Kelsey's, um, and this was a week ago or whenever his social media footprint grew by nine hundred thousand followers yeah. in like a day. If I, yeah. I'm not sure about the exact numbers, but it just shows you how anything Taylor Swift is massive. And I think for theaters to have her coming to the movie theater and saying, I want to put my era's tour on your big screens is really a, a great boost for the theater industry for sure. Well, Kelsey, emotionally and financially. Yeah. Well, sales for Kelsey's Jersey went up 400%. I know that first week it was, it was, it's nuts, but yeah, it's incredible. The, the social, Again, that social media footprint. But when we talk about influencers, that name is thrown, you know, that term is thrown around a lot. Yeah. Taylor Swift is an influence. I mean, she, if she were to endorse your whatever, your widgets that you're selling, forget it. You're, you're suddenly, you got it made or yeah. your wine or whatever it may be. I'm not saying she's doing that, but anything she does in, uh, up to and including a sign off and, and an acknowledgement of the movie theater, the importance of the movie theater, that's a huge deal. So, uh, Good, good for Swift and good for the Swifties. And 
you know, it's good for the theaters and, and the Beyonce announcement as well. Uh, and like you said earlier, Jason, very correctly and astutely was that theaters need content and midweeks, it can be pretty quiet and to have a concert in there midweek where you might get the true Swifties may come back. There's also the idea, and I've heard this idea bandied about, is that some of these concerts, if they're if the tour is going on while the film is in theaters, you could conceivably add new footage to get people to come back and see it once, twice, three times. Yeah. As every week, you could add a song or add a, a moment behind uh, the scenes or whatever. And with digital cinema and the way that they can shoot and edit this very quickly, that is a possibility. And that's really intriguing as well. Well, and a month later, they'll release the concert tour with the Taylor Swift commentary track. Exactly. <laughs> right? I mean, they can do exactly. anything. You're right. They could. They could yeah. do anything with it. All right. So, uh, so the box office predictions for Exorcist this weekend is around thirty minute, uh, thirty million plus. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's going to make it? I think so. I think. I mean, it's a big brand. I, I know though that a lot of people who are going to go see it weren't even born when the first movie came out but uh the trailer is sufficiently creepy and scary i think to get most people in and look jason it used to be that horror movies would open on friday and die on saturday they would just drop off immediately but i think in this case it'll play look at the nun too that that movie had terrible reviews but the trailer was scary as hell and with horror movies often it's a couple of things it's the trailer if it's sufficiently creepy and scary and to get people excited to go. And then just the genre and the fun of seeing a horror movie in the communal environment of the movie theater. There's really nothing like it. Those chills and scares when everybody's screaming together, that electricity in the air is very unique. So I think it's going to do quite well. And then remember that movie moved off of Friday the 13th because of guess who Taylor Swift. Yeah. Uh, scared the devil out of the, off that date, <laughs> and which is a perfect date for Exorcist, Friday the 13th. But it's moved up a week. I think it'll do well. And then we have Taylor Swift the week after. And then we'll have to see what effect Swift and Beyonce have on the holiday movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's going to you know, be That could be a net benefit if you have enough people being exposed to the in-theater marketing and trailers for the, for the you know films coming out in November and December. And then they'll say, hey, I want to come back and see that movie. So that could actually be a good thing. I don't think it'll cut into the sales of those other movies, the Swift and the Beyonce films. But it'll be interesting to see the dynamic, how that has changed with the dropping of Swift in October, mid-October and Beyonce December 1. All very right. cool stuff. Well, we yeah. will see how all of that plays out. Paul DeGarabedian yeah. from Comscore, thanks very much for being here, sir. Great to be here, Jason. I always enjoy it. Great to see you. You can find Paul on Twitter, and he is also the host of two different podcasts, Mini Screens Big Picture and Ticket to Ride, which he does with Mike Polidurus, those both over on Apple, of course, and probably available in other places as well. Paul, thanks very much for being here, sir. It's good to have you back. Thank you, Jason. Good to see you again. Uh, And uh, we'll see what happens with these big movies, and we can reconnect down the road and see if we were correct on some of our predictions. Absolutely. We will do this again. Thanks very much, sir. Thank you. All right. I hit one button wrong. (laughs) Anyway. All right. Mark your calendars, folks, for October 14th. 
Walking and Rolling Costumes is going to be having their costume reveals. We're going to broadcast starting at 3 o'clock Central uh, over on uh, their socials. I'm not sure exactly which channels it's going to be on, but we're going to go three hours. And we're going to reveal a number of different costumes. And these are costumes for kids with special needs. Most of them are in wheelchairs. Uh, so these costumes are designed around that. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a good cause. They need money. They need volunteers. Uh, and so here we are, second hour. Thanks to Paul for, uh, for his insights into, uh, into things. <sighs> anyway, all right. And I did, I did, I did uh, back time that recording in error. I should have started at about ten minutes ago because we're into the second hour now, and it's time to it's time to get going into our into our guest discussion. Uh, Cameron Pasha is in the background. We're waiting on Judah to show up, and we're going to talk about the fallout, the aftermath, what comes next. When it comes to the writers' strike, and uh, we've got the actors' strike that's still going on, and uh, you know it's one of those things where we're going to have to figure this out. Uh, by the way, the Walt Disney Company has uh, cleared eighty dollars; is now at eighty oh eight a share uh, for that. So there's there's that going on. All right, here's what we're going to do: we're going to take a real quick break. When we come back. We'll have our conversation with Cameron Pasha. Stand by. Sci-Fi for Me is about to take you on an incredible journey into the realms of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Interviews with writers, filmmakers, artists, and actors. Conventions and fandom. Previews and reviews of movies and television. Sci-Fi for Me is working to be the most popular science fiction magazine in the solar system. Subscribe now and enter the fantastic world of Sci-Fi for Me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. All right, back here live from the bunker. We are joined live by Mr. Cameron Pasha. He is a, an author, a screenwriter, a producer, an online pundit, a prognosticator, analyst. I mean, there's a number of different uh, labels that we could put on you there, sir. And and most of them are complimentary if you if you look around to the right places. <laughs> How you been? Uh, I've been great, Jason. It's wonderful to, to see you. Uh, it's wonderful to be back on the channel. Uh, you know, I think this is one one of the really great channels out there on YouTube that does real analysis and sophisticated thought and brings some very interesting guests here. So thank you for bringing me on. Well, I appreciate that. Those are those are kind words. It's always good to have you on here. Uh, it, it, and it's and it's interesting to. Uh, to look at all of the different things that are happening, not just in Hollywood, but, you know, culturally and to find those people who are of completely different backgrounds, all looking at this kind of going, you know what, this is kind of this is kind of off. And the writer's strike, as it developed, as it played out, was kind of one of those things where you're looking at this thing was like, why is this taking so long to resolve? And then we 
you know, we get the different uh, the different things on the inside where uh, where you were seeing some different things in discussion groups about what was being talked about, you know, behind the scenes and some different things there. It it almost seemed like there was a there was a movement within the Writers Guild to kind of sabotage this and play and and play out the long game to try to get some things that maybe weren't realistic expectations. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, uh, there there uh, uh, there was a lot going on here. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily phrase it as the team of sabotage this. Uh, you know, I think this was a plan. Uh, I think that this entire strike was decided upon by two parties. I think I think the studios wanted a strike, and we can talk about the reasons why some of the studio heads wanted the strike. And I think uh, the Writers Guild leadership wanted a strike as well. And I yeah. think that when you have two sides that want a strike, a strike is going to happen, right? The problem became once the strike was in effect, each of them had a different agenda as to when they wanted that strike to end, what they wanted out of it, and those were conflicting agendas. And that made it go on perhaps longer than anyone anticipated. But then other forces came in to, I think, really resolve it and we'll talk about those issues because you know it's a very example of how hollywood works i mean it's nothing is as it appears to be and yet if you think about it it all makes sense well and and the other part of that is you know you've been reporting that that some of these people who are members of the writers guild are finding out that they're not at the income level that allows them to even vote on ratification of this thing and yeah. you've got some frustration there you have uh, you have some frustration from the showrunners so let's let's take a, a, a quick step back a little bit and explain to people what exactly is the is your understanding because you're in the writers guild, you've been following this. What exactly is the deal as it sits on the table now? Well, I mean, the deal is long and complex, right? I mean, you know, I we they sent us a summary, and they also sent us a link with the, with all the, the 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 detail points, um, which the, some of the more lawyerly uh, minded members of the guild. I'm a former lawyer, but I don't care enough to go through every single line <laughs> like that. So I went through the summary, right? And right. you know, and so you know, there's so I mean. On many levels, it appears to be a, a perfectly good deal, you know, with a lot of great things. There's a lot of increases on sort of the minimums of, of what, uh, you know, because the purpose of the guild is this, is that it's there to establish the floor, the floor of what uh, a member of the Writers Guild can earn, not a ceiling, mm -hmm. because you know, top members of the guild ain't earning no floor, right? And they're earning millions, tens of millions at the highest levels, you're earning hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And so the floor isn't there for them. It's for it's for others. The idea being to establish some basic to be a member of the union, you get the benefit of at least knowing that you know you're not going to be, you know, there there is only so little that people can pay you, right? And there yeah. is a there is a limit. And so those floors have been raised, and you know, and there's been some analysis uh, that's been done about whether that they they really catch up inflation or not. I mean, we can get into that, but it's but but all of that is there. There's uh, you know, there's some good things for that. I will give because I'm going to do a lot of criticism of my writers guild leadership in, in, ten, in today's episode. Let me give them some kudos, right? Sure. So they raised the floors, got some healthy benefits, right? Uh, I, they, they actually addressed a lot of issues that that people in the writers guild that felt they had been ignored for the last couple of decades felt at least got something out of it. Example: I've got friends who are members of writings teams. You know that essentially you have two writers for one. You know, they share, they split a paycheck, and they're and they're they're partners. And they've got, and as a result, you know, previously because it's two people sharing one paycheck, sometimes that paycheck wasn't enough to meet the minimums to get you your health coverage, right? For right. both people. So had it been one person, you know, they, that would have been enough, right? But now, 
50-50, they, they don't actually meet the minimum together. So they're both out of health coverage. You know, that, that's not a good situation to be in. And so they've addressed that. Uh, my understanding is for the first time, as I understand now that writing teams, you know, can have their, can have it counted at, you know, the full amount to them each as a person so they can achieve their, their, their pension uh, and, and, and health minimums, which is really wonderful. You know, a problem that you've had since the last strike, which the, you know, it took, it took them, since the last strike to fix it, but one of the one of the things that happened in the last strike in 2007 2008 was that the old practice in move for movie writers was that they would be guaranteed multiple steps on writing. You know, uh, I I sell a script, uh, I'm given you know two or three rewrites guaranteed before you're pushed off and a more famous writer is brought in. Sure. But at least you got a chance to number one show that you could take it all the way to get it to screen. You get a few rewrites, right, guaranteed, and then. Um, you know, and also that's just money. That's that's money in your pocket, right? And then after the 2008 strike, that kind of that tradition that was there of how many multiple writing steps, as we call them, just went away. I don't know that it was codified, but it was just in order to fund some of the other wins in the 2008 strike. You know, the alleged wins, right? They had to, of course, cut corners somewhere else, and that came from. Well, we're just going to give movie writers instead of two or three steps, we're just going to give you, you you sell a script, you get one guaranteed write. See you later, sucker, right? Okay, so. And movie writers have been complaining that they that they stepped backwards since 2008, that their income went down yeah. as a result of that. Uh, and so that's been addressed. Now there's there's a second step, uh, you know, now in, in now there's a second guaranteed step in there. Uh, and so they're, they're making real moves to try to address some of the people that have been frustrated and felt unheard for well over a decade. Right. Almost 20 years. And so it's a. Uh, it's good to see all of those things, but remember the, the strike wasn't about those things. Those things were all, that wasn't, you never, you know, you wouldn't really hear about that in the rhetoric. You see, if you go to the trades, if you hear the speeches they were making, the strike was uh, at least as it was sold to the uh, majority of the writers guild membership was about two things, which they achieved, but didn't really achieve. Right. Which is right. how I thought it was going to play out. Yeah. You know, the two things that they that they said we are we are going to strike over because you could arguably get everything that we've gotten, these increases, you know, another step for for um, for movie writers, another, you know, uh, a, a guarantees for writing teams to get into their health uh, contributions. You could have gotten all that through a, a normal negotiation. But a strike is there because there's something you can't get and you have to force the system. Right. So the strike was sold on the things you supposedly couldn't get, which are the two things, which is we were, going to, we were going to guarantee that every TV show would have a minimum number of writers guaranteed, you know. So because the claim was that uh, Hollywood is moving towards smaller and smaller um, orders, you know, 20 years ago, it was just network orders of 22, 23 episodes. Cable comes around, you know, FX and, you know, basic cable comes around, becomes 13 episodes and it became 10 episodes. Then then Netflix has come around and it becomes eight episodes. And now you've got Star Wars shows being made for six episodes. Right. Yeah. And so there's claim that, you know, there, there's fewer there's there's fewer orders and fewer writers are going to be needed. And so and now you've got you've got people like Taylor Sheridan, who just claims to write the entire show himself. Note, I use the word claims, but that's his <laughs> official stance is that he writes the show himself. Right. So he doesn't need a writing staff. And so you've got, you know, you know, you know you've got, uh, you know, White Lotus the gentleman writes it all himself. Right. And so you and they're like, well, this is going to eliminate jobs in the future. It's just going to be one or two writers maximum, you know. Uh, I never believe that was what can happen because writers' rooms serve a purpose. I mean, there's a purpose. Studios 
understand that running a TV show is a very big, big task. And generally a writer's room helps the showrunner achieve it. So most, I never believed that that rhetoric that they were going to go away or, but whatever, that was a claim. And yeah. so they, they had to fight for minimum staffing, which they achieved. And then we're going to talk about why it didn't actually achieve anything, <laughs> at least not for the people that were fighting for it. Um, and we'll talk about that. And then the other thing that they claimed that we had to strike over was allegedly AI protections, which we achieved. But then when we look at the language, uh, you know, I would argue, and I'm going to argue in today's video, that we achieved nothing, that this was this was exactly the way the world was back in, back in you know, May 1st or May 2nd when we went on strike. So we haven't achieved anything. I'm going to make that argument that the strike, if that was the reason for these strikes, I don't I don't think that that was reason has been fulfilled. And we'll talk about those things. Yeah, it, as more, more writers are looking at that, they're realizing they kind of got screwed here. That, that the story that was told to them, this is not just Cameron Pasha with an opinion. This is becoming a real conversation of the guild that we fought. This is the result of the strike. Wait a minute. Yeah, because uh, you talk about the, the the writer's room minimums and, you know, depending on how many episodes as on the television side, depending on how many episodes you, you have a minimum number of writers, minimum number of writer, producer, showrunner types, and people are realizing that, well, if our minimum is three, then they're only going to hire three. That, you know, the well, minimum yeah, becomes got, a maximum. You've gotten to the like, end of the well, journey there, right there. I was yeah. like, what did, we, what did we achieve here? So how, how is this, how is it a bad deal and why did it take so long to re to re to realize that this is where it was going to go cuz you were predicting early on over on your patreon this is not going to go the way people expect it to go because of who's in charge and the things that they're saying and the rhetoric that's out there from the negotiating committee and the stuff that we're finding out about behind the scenes of the negotiating committee why why did this kind of sneak in and not enough people realize that this was the deal that was actually going to work out this way? I so our, there's two questions there. So there are two questions. There's what's wrong with the deal and why do people not realize this is how it was going to play out? Yeah. Which one would you like me to address? Because they're, they're, they are, they're obviously linked questions. Yeah. Um, you know, but which one would you, which one do you think your audience wants to hear first? You I, want to talk I, about I think you can, you can take your pick, you know, dealer's choice. All right. Why don't, why don't we talk about what's wrong with it? Right. Let's okay. what's what the problem is because I've given them the praise, blah, blah. They got some stuff. I, my argument is that all the stuff that they got is stuff you would get in a normal negotiation without having to strike. If you just, you know, you know, if you were in good faith negotiation, right? It's just, we need this and blah, blah, type conversations. Uh, the thing that we had to strike over this minimum writer's room and the AI. So let's go over what's wrong with them. Okay. Uh, and, you know, let me clarify, minimum writer room worked out great for me and for upper level writers, which is what I predicted would happen, right? Um, and that's going to link into why I think it played out this way, right? A certain class was being serviced, right? From mm -hmm. the very beginning, it's always been that way. So the, the, the current, the victory that we that we were proclaimed uh, that we now have guaranteed be before there was you know it could be willy nilly you know uh, NBC could only put two people on the show if it wanted to on a writing staff unlikely but they could there was no rules about it right right now we have a guarantee and so let me go over for a second what the guarantee is. so it's structured cor you know correctly based on. Uh, on the number of episodes because some of our initial demand for, well, we're just, we want, I mean, I mean, it's a negotiation tactic, but it, again, remember the, the average person on the picket line, the young writer believe these negotiations tactics because they don't know. They've now learned how the world works. This was their, this was their <laughs> moment. 
right? That moment when everyone goes from the idealistic college kid to I've got to pay my mortgage right. and you become, your, your worldview changes. And this is the moment where they got slapped with their mortgage of how the world works, right? Okay? Yeah, so, this, so, is, this is that what's FICA moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why am I, why is my paycheck less than I expected? Right. Yep. And, and okay. And so this is the moment and these kids are about to learn this. So, so initially the, the demand had been that on, on an eight episode show, which is now becoming a bit like the Netflix standard and even a cable, it's becoming standard like stars and other major cable networks. Right. They are doing eight episode shows now, even more than 10 episode shows. That's becoming the standard. And so the initial demand was we're going to guarantee seven writers in an eight episode room. I've worked in a, a you know, I've worked in more than eight episode rooms, you know, 12, 10, 12, and it's like, they don't have seven writers. That's crazy. But I mean, that's a negotiation stance. We're going to ask for something extreme. You know, the, the, uh, the, the, the joke, I think it was eight episodes, eight writers on a 10 episode show. And then eventually they, the writers guild compromised by going, we would demand seven writers on a 10 episode. Show. <laughs> this is stupid stuff. I mean, we're never going to get that. Yeah. And so it had to, if there was any kind of any minimum writing, it had to be minimum staff. It had to be based on the number of episodes realistically, because you don't need 10 people on a five up a six episode show. I mean, that's just what do you need them for? Right. And so it had to be based. And that's what, so, so the tiers that we got uh, in the, in the writers guild, uh, you know, current, uh, agreement, which you know, still has still being voted on, and hopefully will be voted yes by the weekend. But so it, it's divided up into uh, into episodic tiers. I'm going to pull that up here on my screen so we can we can see how this works. Um, all, right. all right. While you're doing that, let me read a super chat real quick. Corion Corion Witch in residence. Corion Witch in residence. Two dollars Canadian says Cameron and sci-fi for me. The PB and J of pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> are you the peanut butter or are you the jelly i don't know i don't know i i'm, I'm who's the bread who's well the bread? i'm not i'm not sweet i know that much so i okay all right well <laughs> so well, i i well you have a lovely home and your wife is sweet so i've been there so all right so here we go so it's divided up into into three tiers uh of shows that are six episodes or fewer shows that are between seven and twelve episodes which brings in the eight episode model that most of of cable is not going to and then shows that are 13 episodes or more that's primarily network right so that's that's you know and so so on a six episode or fewer show and that includes shows like obi-wan kenobi which was six episodes on on uh on disney plus right uh you have a minimum number of three writers in the room now here's the kicker this is the punch to all the young kids that were picketing for this because they were told this is the only way to guarantee that you're going to have a job. Otherwise, only the rich guys are going to get a job, right? And so th there's three writers guaranteed on that six-episode show. If you were working on Obi-Wan season two, let's say let's do it. six episodes, right? There's three writers guaranteed. Not one of them has to be a lower-level writer. It's all they, they all have to be upper-level writers, meaning producer level. So yeah. to understand for those, there's two tiers in writing. There's the lower levels, which are the introductory break into the in industry, start getting, learning how this works stuff, which is the staff writer tier, which is the entry level job. Then the, from that, the next level job is story editor. And above that is executive story editor. So those are essentially three levels of lower levels. And most writers just stay at that level, right? Because, yep. <laughs> you know, then because in the next break is now you become a producer, which becomes now you're a manager on the show, you're a leader on the show. The next stage past executive story editor is co-producer. And then it goes from up there to producer, consulting producer, co-executive producer, executive producer. So there's the tier. But it's just, you know, it's like it's like we think of above the line, below the line in budgets of um, 
of a show below the line, you know, above the line are the writers, the actors, the directors, uh, and then below the line are all the crew, right? And so yep. that's like a that's yep. like a, a strict line. So so on the six episode show, guess what? All those three guaranteed writers, they must be upper level. So no need there's no requirement to hire one of these kids for a six episode show. And now, that was when the wake up call for a lot of my young mentees who I told this is not going to work out for you. Yeah. And they saw this and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's no guaranteed slot for us in this. So no, I, I looked at the slot. I looked at that chart. Yeah. And it said minimum number of writers, three minimum number of writer producers, three. And you're saying yes. that the studio could look at that and say, we're hiring the writer producers and that covers our three writers. That is the only way to do it. Yeah. I mean, if you know, because the minimum number of writer producers that must be on a six episode show is three, and the minimum number of writers is three. So those three minimum will be upper level producers. That's just it. You could, if you're generous, you could hire five people and get some minimum, right? Right. Studio could hire five people and say, well, three of them will have to be upper levels. But guess what? There's no, if you hire five people, there's still no guarantee. You can hire five upper levels. There's no guarantee for a lower level job. Yeah. Okay. So that's on the sixth episode tier. But it must get better. Okay. Well, there's not, you know, how many Obi Wan episodes? Most of the shows are more than six episodes. How, it's got to get better, right? For the lower levels. Maybe on an upper level, more shows. So we look at the next tier. The next tier is seven to 12 episodes, which is still where a majority of cable is, right? Uh, and so the minimum number of writers in a room is five. So you must have five writers on an eight-episode show. Again, the of those, hey, good to see you. Dude. How are you? Welcome. He's the he's the bread. We're the uh, peanut butter and jelly. He's the bread. Sure. <laughs> All right. All right. So, Judah Engelmeyer so, joins yeah. us real quick. I've I've just got to just pop him in here while Cameron is explaining all of this. Sorry to interrupt there, Cameron. Go ahead and and finish that. Welcome, welcome, dude. I was just going over hey, how. how I was just going over how the minimum writers thing screws the younger writers like I warned them it would, right? So, you know, so the second tier, eight, 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 eight episodes, five guaranteed writers, of which three must be upper levels like myself. Great. And then you got two other slots, which could be Lord, it could be staff writers, it could be executive story editor, right? It could be all that. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. You could still staff all five with upper level writers. Right. Oh, well, so let's look at the next tier. Let's look at the next year. The final tier is 13 episodes a month, which is network, right? So now you have great. We got six six writers guaranteed, of which three must be writer, producer, upper level. And three could could be anybody else. They don't have to be. So you could have six upper level writers on that show <laughs> if you wanted to, right? There's not a single guarantee for any of these young kids that were picketing for five months. There's not – I mean, I think most shows will hire – I will hire lower level writers for two reasons. One is that there is a lot of crap work that that I've done that we need to get need to get done that they're going to have to deal with and a lot of you know co-executive producers the might the grunt work the grunt work having to do that work. Yeah. yeah, they don't want to get up and write on the board and you know take notes. They don't want to do that crap, right? Because uh, they're like, I've been in business for 15 years. I don't know what I have to do this crap for. So you have younger level people, but you don't have to. I mean, we could all we could all split that up you know, amongst us upper guys. And then, you know, it's, I also believe in training the next generation just because I think it's useful for the, it's a system. Somebody yeah. trained me, right? I think that's necessary. Even the Sith 
or require an apprentice. You need to have an apprentice, right? Even the simp require an apprentice. Yeah, well, I mean, let's call the rule of two. It's not the rule of one, right? And so, and then, and on a selfish level, you hope these kids will become more successful than you one day, and will hire you in the future, right? So that's the generational thing, right? Yeah. So, well, there's a couple of but questions. It's not in the guaranteed. Chat. Yeah, but there's a couple of questions in the chat. Michael and Snob both asking this: Wouldn't there be an advantage economically, budget-wise? Because your writer, producer, executive, top tier level, they're going to be more expensive. Is yeah. there, is there, I mean, are the studios, is there any talk about how, how much incentive there is to hire the cheaper writers? I mean, has there been any talk about well, that, that, that the argument? Yeah. That's the argument the Writers Guild board is now making because they're under fire. They're getting a lot of heat from these young kids who see they're not guaranteed anything. And the argument is, will economics require it? Guess what? There's yeah. a lot more than just economics. It's <laughs> politics in this town, it's right? Politics. It's, 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 Hollywood, it's Hollywood math. It's it's it's, it's, it's politics, but it's also going. You know, if if, you, if you're if you're there's such heavy competition, you want to go with the sure thing. You know, writers who have been successful are 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 the sure thing as opposed to writers who are brand new. Listen, they could be terrific, but I want to make a show that's going to make a lot of money today. Not 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 hope and not think and not try. Yeah. And and you're right, Judah. And so, and the thing is, if I if I'm if I'm let's say on an eight episode, because I'm trying to, God willing, I'm working right now on a show that the talk is an eight episode series, right? That's the talk, right? So if we get eight episodes, then at this current system, I'd have to have five people. But that, remember, that includes me, showrunner includes me. So now I got four people. So I'm upper level. So I'd have to have at least two more people of my level, right? And then two others. Uh, I would like. I was I was sitting down with one of the other producers on our show, saying, okay, how would we do this, right? And interesting enough, we're like going through all the scenarios and the scenarios tended to be mostly hiring more people like me, <laughs> just on a practical <laughs> level. It's like, all right, this is probably what our budget's going to be. And do we really want, do we, wouldn't we just want to have the most experienced people because it's a big show, historical stuff, people going to be a lot of experience needed on the set. Do we really want to spend those other two slots on people that, do we want to, if we've got the money? And so already we're like chess gaming it and it's not working out for the younger writers. Yeah. Now they're starting to realize this and the blowback to the negotiating committee is coming in. And apparently uh, in at least one of these meetings, you've reported some people on the inside that are saying that the, that the, the, the negotiating suits are sitting there going, well, talk to your agents. And these are the same yeah. people that told you to fire your agents, what, two years ago, three years ago? Yeah, no, that happened this week. Uh, a friend of mine, there was a showrunners meeting. So the Writers Guild has had, you, Judah, you, Judah, you don't know, you, Judah, you know this. I'm going to let you talk about this now. But, uh, but the idea of, of messaging to different audiences, right? We're going to have you talk about this, Judah, because <laughs> they've been giving a certain message on the picket line. Then they've been giving uh, the Writers Guild, negotiating committee, and board have been giving certain messages to the broad membership, which is rah rah, the greatest. This is this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, peanut butter, and jelly sandwich, right? It's the greatest thing in history, right? right. And then they had their meeting with the showrunners, the big bosses. They had that meeting this week, and a friend of mine attended it and told me that the meeting was quite tense. And people are like, you know, you made us lose work for five months. Some of us had our shows canceled in those five months. And this is what we got out of it because they were now able to do the level of analysis I'm doing out of this, right? And that it, was a, it wasn't a necessarily a pleasant meeting. It was all sort of perfunctorily pleasant, but it wasn't the rah-rah, we won. None of that was there. And then people raised this question, which is the issue of, which you said at the very beginning, Jason, which I've said for five months, <laughs> which is that once you establish a minimum, it very quickly becomes the maximum. Once the studio starts thinking in terms of, 
well, there's five writers on Cameron's shows because it's seeing the minimum requirement of the guild. It's not thinking of, well, we should add more money and make that seven writers. It's not yeah. thinking that way. They're like, well, that's our budget now. They're, they're already thinking in actuarial terms, five writers, that's what we're going to budget for. You've just, and to make it worse, at this meeting, one of the show, one, this is the point. One of the showrunners raised, uh, I wasn't at this meeting. I, 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 I'm done with meeting these people. I, I know what they're about. I don't go to these meetings, right? But so my friend was there. And he said, one of, the, one of the showrunners got up and said, so how do we make sure this doesn't become the maximum, right? Because that's what it looks like is going to happen. Then it's, because right now, and they got, the, they got the board to admit this, the current minimums are below the current staff, normal, normal staffing thresholds on these shows, right? So if this becomes a maximum, that means there's going to be fewer jobs. If right now on an eight-episode show you're hiring six or seven people, but now there's a five, those six or seven people is going to go down to five. That's where right. they're going, right? So you're going to lose jobs. And so and showrunner said, how do we make sure that doesn't happen? My show has has six writers. Now next year they'll ask me to have five based on your structure you've created. And then their response was, well, you should get your agents involved in that. What? You told us our agents are our enemies. For the, you made us fire them. Now they can solve this problem that you created. So, dude, I'm well, gonna let you talk now a little bit about I mean, messaging. Listen, if, if you want to talk about messaging, this there's the messaging is to the broader, the general public, the the, the progressive audience that that we know about that what, want to hear about the 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 the, the workers who are on strike and the workers are succeeding and the workers have 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 been have been successful because they, they they made headway against the big evil executives. It's not actually fact. But that's the, the messaging. And do yeah. they really care if the small guys in, in, inside are, you know, who, who are actually on pick lines get screwed? No. The overall messaging is we won. The, we, the union beat back. It's, it's about, I hate to say it, and I know that you're involved in, you know, with, with, with Hollywood, so the screenwriters and all that are important. But the unions all over the place. Unions are not seen by the higher echelon as, as non-corrupt. They're seen as they're in it for themselves. They're in it for what well, they, of course what they, they are. Union, the union leaders are in, are, are in cahoots with, with, with our political leaders and with the executives. And, you know, as long as they're all getting lathered with what they need, they don't really care what the individuals or what the little guys are getting. The messaging is we won. And you know yeah. what? America hears we won. Joe Biden stood on a picket line with auto workers and we, we're winning. We're winning. You know, he created his, his mandate for electric cars reduced the need for line workers on 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 on, on standard automobiles well, but, but dude we won means matter. this that doesn't matter well dude we won means this it's lenin standing atop of all the dead bodies of workers and yes. peasants we won but, it's but, like who won so the politburo won so cameron <laughs> the question i have for you and maybe i i don't even have i, I don't have the answer is how do we make the the, the general population understand that this is all a ruse, it's all a game, and 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 who's winning? The people who always win are the ones who always win. Well, how <laughs> you know? will they ever understand that? They've never understood that. You know, because, I would suggest you know there's because only we, one form of government, Judah. It's feudalism. It's it, always been the case. There's <laughs> always a small group of people who own everything, and everyone else is a bunch of serfs. And I think America tried to do something against that, and we just resorted back to feudalism well, because that's well, human nature. The, the, the problem is <laughs> human nature is that we want to be told what to do. We want to be told what's right. We want to technically be on the right side of issues. We want to be good people, so we want to help the world. But but so but who actually you know CNN Fox News and all the even to New York Times there they all cater to, to they're all they they don't report news they don't report real issues they're they're reporting what they think everyone needs to hear and know 
which is a very different philosophy. It, it's, 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 it's it's brutal lords. It's well, all, it's nothing. But, nothing but, but, Roman but, Empire recognizes the social structure. Nothing well, and, with, and with, to Cameron's... with all due respect to all that, the average yeah. person doesn't care. They want to be led. They want to be led. Correct. We That's be why sheep. it's feudalism. We, we want to be <laughs> sheep. I mean, I'm a libertarian, dude. I'm, I'm an, a Mises, uh, you know, Ludwig von Mises, you <laughs> yeah. know, libertarian, Austrian economics, and it, it works. But most it people works. don't want it. They don't it, want it. You know they don't because, want the freedom of it. <laughs> because the freedom requires work. It requires time. It requires mental exhaustion. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and you know what? I just want I just I just want to I, I just want to be told what to do and not have to think about it. So I could, I could watch TV all day long. I don't I don't you know, it, it's it's right. a, I, I don't understand people today. You know, I, I, I my son just human nature just, hasn't changed. You go back. That's why I love reading history. That's why I go back and I, I read the debates of like the Roman Senate. Right. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because you you mentioned that we uh, Mrs. Boss and I last night watched Time After Time, which is uh, the movie uh, uh, Malcolm McDowell and David right. Warner. Right. You know, H.G. Wells flat. That's what that's going, they were going after Jack. Jack the Ripper. The Ripper. Yeah, I the that. Time. Time. Yeah. I love that movie. Great. And and Jack the Ripper's you know, Stevenson's point. You know, because in the beginning, it sets up that H.G. Wells expects the future to be utopian. We're all going to get along. Everything's going to be great. And Stevenson, you know, the Jack the Ripper character, he's like, no, it's not. Human nature hasn't changed in thousands of years. It's not going to be this utopian society. And they end up in 1979. And Stevenson is like, I'm in my space. You know, this is this is me. You know, even mm -hmm. even bigger than me. You know, we're all killing each other. We're doing it more efficiently with bigger machines, but we're still killing each other. We're still, you know, right. monstrous with each other. And it's like what Cameron said: human nature doesn't change. You know, you right. you look you look back at 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 uh, you know the Roman Empire to now. I mean, sure, we're men. We think about the Roman Empire all the time. Apparently, according to social media, <laughs> we did it on this show. Today, and yeah. <laughs> and it's it's one of those things where. I think there's there's two types of people. Like Judah say, there, there are people who want to be led, but I think it's more than that too. I think there's another layer to that, where there are people people in general are made to believe in something. It is it is part of human nature that we have this gap, that's that gets filled in by whatever it is that we end up worshiping, and whether that's money. Or God, or Buddha, or you know, whatever, whatever, whatever that thing is, we have to believe in something, or else we don't feel fulfilled. And there are a lot of people that that hole gets filled by somebody, you know, in their ear saying, you know, if you do this, it's going to go really well, it's going to be really great, it's going to be awesome. And then, and then you get into it and you find out, oh, this is not that who, great. Who is the first person that that happened to? Adam and Eve, serpent whisper in the ear. This is going to work out for you, man. Yeah. This thing's going to work out for you. Right. And we haven't learned since. No, we haven't learned since. And it's the same thing. The, the, the unions are fighting. The people who are on the picket lines believe they're fighting for a cause while negotiations happening around them. And then all of a sudden, and it gets announced, they came to a deal. The strike's almost over. And the people on the picket line going, I still don't have, I don't understand. But it gets it gets clouded out by by media saying they came to a deal and that's what the population believes who cares yeah. about what the individual thinks and and how well, to and, but the ones that are waking up the young kids are waking up like my mentees i warned them i warned them i mean there's a lot of young kids that i've been that i've been guiding people i've worked with who are who are, who are assistants on other shows and i'm like look this is a mistake this isn't going to play out the way you think 
and they said, Cameron, you're just you're just a right wing guy who doesn't. And now they're like, and I remember getting the text when they read this, and they're not stupid people; they're kids, but they're not stupid. They said, "Wait a minute, how did this doesn't help us?" I was like, "Ding, ding, 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 ding." I mean, and so now they're getting angry. But now they're getting angry. They have no power. But yeah, now and they can't vote. They can't vote. They don't have because they're young kids. They don't have the. There's a in order. This is the way the brilliance of the of the feudal system of the Writers Guild. Any joker can vote to put in these clowns in power, but to actually ratify the deal, you have to have made a certain amount of money. (laughs) So you can have any say in the contract, right? So they elect these clowns. And the last thing, Judah, did you notice this? The Writers Guild strike, you know, they they weren't talking, they weren't talking. And then suddenly they announced they were going to talk again. And I've heard some background information as to how that happened, right? It was a little shady. But they announced that the writers and studios were going to meet again. And they said, we're going to meet in one week on next Wednesday. And it was like, why don't you meet tomorrow? Why don't you meet on Friday? Why don't you meet on Monday? Get what what happened. I was like, I know why they're meeting next Wednesday. And then four days after that, they closed the deal, right? Why are they meeting next Wednesday? Because Tuesday was the Writers Guild vote for the board. Right. So once they the board had secured its well, own re-election, and then the, the next day they beat. Yeah, yeah, they didn't do yeah. it on Tuesday where no. they might have made a deal and been voted out of office by remember these kids can vote for who's in the board. They just can't right. vote to ratify the deal. Yeah. So they had to make sure they stayed in power. I mean, it's so self-serving. Well, and the other thing too, I mean, you've got this there's a there's a report on IndieWire, because you know, this this whole thing with the writer's guilt, now you've got the whole thing with SAG AFTRA coming right after this down the pipeline. And this oh, had this, 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 this headline <laughs> on IndieWire, Netflix is just waiting out the actor strike to increase your monthly price. So, you know, there are reports out there, and this is where it's going to hit the general public, where you say, oh, y'all made a deal, and wait a minute, now it's going to cost me more to, to, to stream this, to, to subscribe to this? I, but why do I do that? I'm, I'm done with your subscription. This, is, this doesn't look like it's going to work out very well on the, on the actor side of things either. Oh, well, they're, they're done. I mean, and, and I'm going to credit the actors for this thing. They behave more professionally and more reasonably than writers have in this process. <laughs> All writers are like, dude, why can't we be like rational people like the actors? Yeah. I've never heard a writer say that in 22 years, <laughs> that the actors are more rational than writers, right? Because they're perceived as very emotional, childlike, blah, blah, blah. But they've acted professionally, and they're going to close the deal any day now. And because everyone knows it's over. And let me tell you why it's over. Because this is the because, this because is the, the New York Times and Washington Post headline said it was. Therefore, it's over. Right, right. So how do we get to that state? So this is the intel that I was given, and it was confirmed. And you will recognize this, Judah, because of the wording of the Hollywood Reporter. So I was told before when we still weren't talking to the studios, we're like, no, they have to talk to us. We're not going to go to them, right? And we're like, what are you talking? I, mean, I was writing angry letters to the to the vice president of the guild. I was like, you know what? This is you're you're messing with my life here. Get back in the room, right? Right. But whatever. And so, but then. A, a few days before we actually went back in and said, okay, well, we'll make a deal. Um, a friend of mine who works as a security guard in Culver City, right, at the, at the King Fahad Mosque, which is right next to Sony Studios, right? Uh, and so he knows, he sees the strikers every day. He talks to the, the people. He talks a lot because he's a security guy. He talks to security guys. He talks to Teamsters, right? So he was telling me, he was telling me about a week before we started, we started negotiating. He's like, oh, this is about to end. I was like, what do you mean? Oh, the Teamsters have told me they're going to make the Writers Guild uh, an offer it can't refuse. 
old school. They're going to basically like, you want to get back in the room now, or we're going to be showing up at 2 a.m. at your house with, with tire irons, right? Old school style. I was like, no, nah, that's just that's just hyperbole. He's like, no, no, they're, they're, they're going to threaten them. I was like, nah. So suddenly, we a week later, we have this restarted negotiation. They settle. And then the Hollywood Reporter did an analysis of what happened. And they said in it that Chris Kaiser, who was our fanatical leader, the head of the negotiating committee, was refusing as to meet with, with the studios. Like, no, they have to come to us. They have to come begging to us, right? And then the Hollywood reporter said, then he heard from some angry Teamsters who were upset <laughs> that they weren't negotiating. The Hollywood reporter put it in the report. And then that day, that afternoon, after certain angry Teamsters spoke with him, he called Iger directly on a Sunday on his cell phone and said, right. we need to meet. Because Teamster said, okay, you're not. He said, we don't care if you negotiate for six months as long as you're negotiating. Yeah. But you're not in the room. That means if you're not in the room out of your ego, that means I can't buy my kids Christmas presents. Right. And, and you know what? Do you like your kneecaps? And it was solved <laughs> like that. And when the Teamsters got involved with the old school 1950s Jimmy Hoffa stuff, right, which I was mm -hmm. told was coming. That's why now you're seeing SAG is you're seeing all the reports on SAG. You're seeing the I don't saw this dude on, on Deadline's report yesterday. People quote is like the, the conversations are very calm. They're using the calm <laughs> because they're you know why everyone's calm because they got dudes with tire irons standing in the lot saying you're gonna close this right. So that's why SAG is done because the team shows are like we're done now. We're going back to the fifties. Yeah, you know so, you guys are gonna get serious because I got kids to feed. So after once again, one, one, once again, that's the feudal system. They're yeah. telling him what to you do, and we're, we're, we're going we're gonna, and we're going to follow. Yes. So the what, couples, the couples came in. So let me ask this, because the yes. the aftermath and the fallout of this, and I know uh, Cameron, you you don't have very much time left here. I want to get your your thoughts, and Judah, I want to yes. get your take on this as from a PR standpoint. These people have spent the last three some odd months fighting each other arguing each other back and forth debate and that's that you know very very contentious now they have to get back in the room and work together again how much how much damage has been done to those working relationships and from from the the standpoint of the studios especially how do you massage that into okay this is this is where we're at now. Let's move past this and start working together again. How do you figure out to do this without all the, the all of the contentiousness and the anger and the bad blood that's that's been sitting there for three months? I mean, this is not just going to go away. Well, well yeah, yes, I, I think it will, and I'll because ultimately, a human nature doesn't change. B, the teamsters have to feed, have to give by their kids' presents. The writers have to buy their kids' presents and pay their rent too, you know. And at some point. At some point, the choice is: Do I stand online for? Do I do I make you know for another for another 10, 12 months or a year? Who knows how long? Or do I just start collecting a paycheck? Reality sets in. You know, the the economy is not great. Uh, inflation is up, and not making money every month really really digs in. And 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 at some point, they're just going to have to suck it up and go back to work. You know, you 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 see it happen all the time. You know how. Can the union really support every single writer and pay them every single day for the next five, 10 years until the, until it's resolved in their favor, if it ever does? No. 
realistically, it's going to, you know, whatever the ending is going to be, people will slowly get back to work. And what you were saying before, Cameron, about five, you know, about, about five writers or seven writers and the new, the new normal is now five. You know what's going to happen mm -hmm. also as shows progress, if they feel they need another writer, they'll go, you know, we're making money. If the show's doing well, we'll hire one more writer. And eventually they'll start building that up again and things will come back to levels. Maybe not the same, maybe, you know, but it, 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 it'll, they set their bar lower. Now it's five. And, you know, the more successful ones will move up if they if they feel the need to. And things will come to a new normal, so to speak. And it'll be like this never happened. And and, and the public and the and, and the, the public will forget that there was a fight and or remember there was a fight and the and the writers won. They won't really know <laughs> what actually happened. And there are people will be people unemployed looking for new jobs for different lines of work. And that's just reality. You know, it's it's and, and first, you, you can't keep progress down. AI is here to stay. And, and whether whether you try to legislate it out or not, it's going to get used somehow, and and it's going to offset jobs. And these people find other opportunities, find other ways to write, other things to write for. Eventually, it's going to settle down, and the media is going to get bored of covering the strike, so to speak, and move on. Eh, they're all back to work. Shows are back on. Netflix is charging another dollar more, but there are 25 more shows a day to choose from. Terrific. No one's going to really the details get marred because. That's how we operate, and the average person doesn't pay that much attention. Yeah. Yep. Everything Judah said is correct. I have to leave in a couple of minutes, so I just want to add to what Judah said. Everything he said is 100% correct uh, because, you know, you just move on. Because in the same way that in Congress, people say the most horrific things about each other in, in public debates and in speeches, and then they go out for lunch because it's, it's, right. it's, it's an act. This is an act of the feudal lords. The feudal lords are all fighting each other. It's an act, right? You know, it's not, it's not personal, and they all know that, right? And so, however... On, uh, it is personal for a new group of people that's about to learn who it's personal for. It's all these young, stupid people on Twitter, right, on X. Mm -hmm. uh, because even even um, Matt Baloney uh, on Puck was saying he was on naming Puck, yeah. them. He was he named them by name. He said he named the loudest, most obnoxious writers on X, Twitter, whatever the hell you want to call it, on social media, who've been publicly calling the studios criminals and been, you know, some of the worst stuff, right? And the thing is, the loudest ones, what they were doing for, as Baloney acknowledged, was just for clout. They were hoping that this was going to make them look like heroes to other writers right. who would right. then hire them in the future, right? And the problem is a lot of us writers were like, this guy's a maniac. I'm not going to put this right. person in my room, right? They're out of control. What are the, if, if, I, if I don't like the script, they're going to be on Twitter saying garbage about me, right? So I'm not going to hire them. So they don't, they don't understand that. But number two, the other thing Baloney pointed out is the executives all saw that. And the executives like, I don't want to. We're not going to hire that. I come to them with my list for my show. They're like, no, nah, not that guy. Not that guy. Right. right. That guy's a jackass. Right. So these people are about to learn the terrible lesson that social media ain't your friend. Right. And for everyone who thinks they're going to be the next Kim Kardashian is wrong. Social media really hurts more people than it helps. Well, and, yeah, and as uh, as the the rapper, what's her name? Sexy Red just found out. You know, the internet is definitely not your. I mean, she comes out on a Tuesday and says that she's supporting Donald Trump, and on a Wednesday, somebody leaks out her sex tape. I mean, it was like, um, yeah. okay, one, don't make sex tape. Two, stay off the internet, <laughs> right? I mean, those are the lessons to learn there, right? Well, one other thing, I would, I, the one thing I would suggest, you know, stay off of, just stay off of Twitter X, you know, yeah. in particular. I'm off of it because I still have Instagram and Facebook, and generally people just kind of ignore you on those right, mm -hmm. right. they kind of ignore you on those Twitter yeah, but is you don't, but it, they, they might ignore you but you don't want to leave a trail of anything you said on yeah or, i agree yeah, I, believe true. I believe i'm on all anyway. i'm on all these platforms i watch and i look at people and i read i don't post my politics any opinions anymore i don't there's <laughs> no it serves no point yeah no it, it serves no point it's just a winnowing process again the professionals <laughs> will survive this 
the 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 non-professionals will destroy themselves and they're doing that right now right. and not my problem because i've somehow you know, I'm a loudmouth. I've made my enemies, but I've survived over two decades, right? I intend to keep surviving, right? Uh, and so these kids shot themselves in the head before they had a chance. That's their right. problem. It's no. not my problem. So, so forgive me. I got to start winding out. Um, you know, uh, I I will add one last thing that maybe you and Judah can talk a little about uh, about the AI thing because it, on the AI thing, which is the other reason we allegedly struck. Uh, if you look at it, we didn't gain anything. It's yeah. pretty much exactly the same as it was yeah. before. And AI, it's it, because the thing that people didn't understand, the writers didn't understand. I was trying to tell them, my young kids and my mentees, I was like, "This isn't. You're not gonna. You're, you're not gonna get anything, and you didn't get anything, because we already know." We don't really need it for writers. Actors need AI protection. They really do. Writers, we already have a very simple protection. We already had it, and it's just been affirmed. It's no change. It's been affirmed by the New Deal. The writer, in order. The current Writers Guild agreement, going back decades, is that the first credited writer on any project uh, has to be a member of the Writers Guild, right? That's how I got in the guild. I sold a script. In order for them to buy the script, they had to induct me into the guild. Taft hardly me in, right? No. I had to be the because I was the first writer on the project, and that's and so you can have you know you can have a you can have an a studio executive writing up. AI to write Expendables 5, which I think will probably be a better version than Expendables 4, and AI written Expendables 5, you know, I saw Expendables 5, what's happening here, right? So, so let's say, and they, and they give me the script, right? But the problem is, it doesn't matter. The, it, you can give me the script, you know, the executive can write the script by themselves, unless to remember the Writers Guild, their name ain't going to be on it, they're not going to get paid a dollar for it, right? Yeah. That's already on there. I'm the first writer, I get paid for it, right? And the, uh, you know, it's just, it, it nothing was gained in this in this in this in this AI thing at all for writers. It's it's exactly as it was before. It's just new language saying it's exactly as it was before. And so we we struck for this to to end up in exactly the same place we were on May first. But there's also the fact of of the world. You can slow progress. You can't stop. Yeah. 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 You know. And 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 then there's there's a way to balance. Even setting aside the Writers Guild rule that the first writer has to be a member of the guild, and and I guess we'll put a rule when when AI gets to the point where we have Cylons like in Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> no, a Cylon can't be a member of the guild. Maybe that's why they revolt against us. The prejudice. Right. A, a Cylon can't be a member of the guild, right? Androids can't. But be eventually they'll be they'll, they'll be made. Listen, Commander Data is a real sentient being. <laughs> well, allegedly sentient. Yeah. We can have that debate. Allegedly sentient, right? They have a whole episode about whether he was sentient or not. But whatever. But the the, the Right now, the legal the courts are on our side. The courts are stating that AI product is not copyrightable. How is a studio going to create Expendables Five if the underlying script is not copyrightable? Right? I yeah. mean, right. so you know that that's silly. And so that wasn't worth ever fighting over. The actors, I think, have a very real AI fight because I've got actor friends who are like you're going to digitize my face and use it again for the next two hundred years without me or my estate getting anything out of it. That's a fair thing to fight about, right? right? Writers were already protected. So mm -hmm. on, on that note, my friends, I have to go. Uh, Junior, you can stick around for a while and talk more about all this, right? Thank you. I'll, I'll, yeah, I, 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 have about, I have about 15 more minutes. Is that okay? All right, right. Yeah, that's fine. Around here. All right. I, I apologize. I have to get ready for lunch. And uh, so blessings to all. Another drama, dude. You know, we got through another drama. Yes. We got to yes. survive another drama, this stupid town, whatever. And you can <laughs> find and you can find Cameron's latest stuff over on Patreon. The link is in yeah. our show notes. Cameron, thanks very much for being here, sir. And I'm Thank glad I'm glad care. there's a deal. Cameron, Hopefully nice, they nice get chatting with you. <laughs> hey. Peace. Take care. Okay, so so Judith, let me ask you this from because I know you've got to head out as well. Let me ask you on on this whole thing. 
with Hollywood being the way it is, and like you were saying, people are not going to be paying attention to this, but some some discussions that I've had recently, and when we did uh, last issue of the Fan Activity Gazette over there for, for uh, N3F, uh, we had a we had a guest article from Culture Casino talking about fans are getting a little bit more savvy to how the thing works, how the machine works. They they may not know all of the nuts and bolts of it, where all of the wheels and the gears are, but it seems like people are paying a little bit more attention to the machinations. Maybe a bit more than they did before, and I don't know if that's. Post-pandemic, we saw all of the stuff, what was happening in terms of manipulating the population with various different things, how the politicians are being seen, how the corporations are being seen. And just as an outgrowth of that, people are looking at Hollywood going, why are you doing it this way? I don't need this. I can go, you know, I can go play putt-putt with my kids. I don't need to see a movie. I don't need to go watch right. the TV series. Which, or, is what you're see- right. which is what you're seeing, though. Yeah. You know, you, you you saw that in one of the que- in, in uh, you know the Exorcist lost out to uh, to Paw Patrol. Why? Because I, I need to entertain my kids. I I don't have to watch anything. I don't have to. You know, I yeah. I, I don't I don't I don't. This is not for me anymore. And people move on. People move on, and they'll they'll find other ways of entertaining themselves, other ways of of, of dealing with life, other ways of find of um. You know, I I'm, I have a client that 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 converts malls into you know use b-class malls that that failed into entertainment centers the bowling alleys laser tag um uh, uh go-kart tracks every store that used to be a store is now a different piece of rent, and they're doing really well yeah because people are finding you know what i don't have to sit in front of the tube anymore i, I you know whoever knows what tubes are anymore <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> you know, they go, I, I can do other things to entertain myself. And that's what, and, you know, COVID helped us with that. And, and, and these various, you know, the, the, the writer strike, um, you know, helped, helped make it at all. We had to watch for reruns. Um, it's, it's, it, you know, it, 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 at some point you're hurting yourself too. Yeah. Well, and, and like Paul and I were talking about earlier, the theater model is going to change. Because the theater right. owners are realizing, well, hey, you know, I I might have a movie to put on my screens. I might not. And it it's only going to stay, you know, 45-day window or however long, and then it goes to streaming, and it, and it loses money there. I can go and sell tickets to a Taylor Swift concert movie and let it run for a week, and I'm, I've am i paid yeah. my staff for six months. Yeah, that, that yep. kind of thing. They're adapting to that to that change in and and they have to I, I listen there right where i live in new jersey there are two large amc theaters that now i can get a seat whenever and wherever i want i don't know how they you know they're going to have to make changes because i don't know i don't know how how those places are going to sustain themselves yeah. unless they do what you're just saying find other ways and find other types of film other types of video entertainment that people can watch and do and and not worry about you know uh the traditional models yeah all right. Well, Judah, I know you've got to head out as well. Thanks very much for being here, sir. Judah is the president of Herald PR, and his links are in the notes as well. And uh, it's it's always good to have you on as it's well. It's nice sir. to be back. I hope everything's going well with you. Uh, we're 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 kind of back. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're not well, going back. Not, it's nice we're to be even even if even if it's a one and done deal. It's nice to see you. It's nice to be on on the forum. And I hope and, and I hope everything everything you're doing is working out. All right, I Thank appreciate that, me. sir. Thanks very appreciate much for being. It. All right, have a great day. Thank you too. Bye-bye. All right, talk to you later. 
Okay, so when we get back, open line. We're going to put the link in. We're going to take our chances. We're going to go an hour. Y'all can call in and tell us what you think about things right after this. And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, here we go. (laughs) So far, so far, it's, so far it's going okay, maybe. It's your turn. I, I made it through two hours. It's your turn now. All right. My name is Jason Hutt. I'm the editor here at SciFiForMe.com. We are live from the bunker. And it's uh, it's time. In the past, we have done this as an open line Friday setup. So I'm testing, again, like I said, we're testing the format. Uh, to see how things go here, but we're going to open up the lines here in just a second. First of all, I want to I want to talk about because because one of the spots that we talked about, uh, you know, the the spot that we ran there, it's all of these numbers, all these people that we talked to, all these interviews. In the in the mix of all of that, I mentioned that we had talked at one point with the founder of Starlog. Uh, Mr. Kerry O'Quinn. And back in 2019, we talked to a number of different people uh, who were alumni of Starlog. And you could go see those over at uh, SciFiForMe.com. Just do a search for Starlog and, and all of that will come up. But the reason I mention this is because the last uh, few days, a few days ago, there was an interesting post in the Starlog Magazine Facebook group. It's a fan group. It's not any kind of an official thing as far as the, you know, the Starlog group and the owners of, of Starlog or whatnot. But Tara Ansley, Tara Ansley who is the cur- a current co-owner of Starlog, Fangoria, she posts into the Starlog fan group this note... And we've posted it over on our Discord, and people can take a look at it there. She says, quote, Calling all Starlog superfans. We're thrilled to announce we're working on something special. I'll be sure to post it here first. In the meantime, I'd love to hear your stories and history with the brand and magazine. Please comment below and share with me. Tara Ensley. This is an intriguing note. This is interesting because back when... Uh, Cinestate owned, because Starlog Group has a history. And before Cinestate owned it, it was owned by a guy out, out of New York who ran Starlog into the ground. They thought that they could do something online with it, and it, it did not go well. So Starlog was kind of defunct for a long time. And the print magazine... 
went out of print in 2009 at, at three, issue number 374. Now, 375 was put together, but it never was published. So it's a, it's a lost episode, if you will. So Tara Ansley posted this, and, and when Cinestate owned it, I was in communication back and forth with various different people at Cinestate. I was like, okay, you guys are bringing Fangoria back. What about Starlog? Because the name of the company was the Starlog Group. Starlog was the flagship. And for them to make this effort to bring Fangoria back, okay, that's great, all well and fine, but what about Starlog? And they said, well, we've got some ideas, we've got some plans. We, we want to get Fangoria up and running first and get that really solid and in place and, and, and done, and then we'll do that. Okay. Well, in the meantime, there was a big hullabaloo and a lot of controversy and some cancellation. So Cinestate ended up selling the whole kitten caboodle to Tara Ansley's group out of L.A. I can't remember the name of the company. So now they're under new ownership. And I've been in contact with them. I was like, okay, what are you going to do with Starlog? Because Starlog's 50th anniversary is in three years. 2026 is their 50th anniversary. And the only place that you can see issues of Starlog in any kind of an online archive is over at the Internet Archive. And I, I think it's been pulled down since then because it was a violation of copyright. Nobody gave the Internet Archive permission to put the magazine up there. And they've made this point. I talked to David McDonald about it when, when I did my interview with him. He was the supervising editor for a long time. He says, nobody gave them permission to do it. And so we're not getting compensated for it. Nobody's getting any money off of it. No, that it's a, it's a, it's a illegal bootleg copy. So when Tara does this, and puts this post out there, my first inclination is to sit there and say they're about to put everything online because they just did it for Fangoria. All the back issues for Fangoria are now in an online thing over on their site. And I'm guessing, and this is a guess, but I'm guessing that they're going to do the same thing for Starlog. And I'm really looking forward to it because if they do that, then maybe, maybe, we get new Starlog. Maybe. I don't know. I, you know, wishful thinking on my part. I've got Starlog back there over the, er, in the, in the spinner rack. I still have my copies. I've got a Starlog t-shirt. You know, I'm, I, I grew up, Starlog has been one of the gold standards for us in terms of how we do what we do here. I would love for Starlog to come back. I don't know that it's gonna. But it would be nice if it could. In the meantime, I'm one kind of sort of step closer to putting together the print magazine. I, I, I got into a rabbit hole last night looking at work from various artists. And I think I found somebody who could... I haven't reached out. I haven't, I'm not going to name names yet because I haven't, I haven't gotten in contact with this guy at all. But um, I may have found a cover artist for the first issue, for the first issue, maybe, if we do it. <laughs> so we'll see. All right, here's what we're going to do. I am going to, uh, I'm going to pop the links in. Here we go. Links are in the chat.
So any of you who want to jump in, let's keep it brief, depending on how many people actually want to jump in here and talk. Uh, there may be three of you, but, you know, that's that's fine. Let's just go the, the next, you know, 45 minutes or so. Uh, one man show says we can't have nice things anymore. I wouldn't hold my breath for new Starlog. I'm not holding my breath for new Starlog yet. Um, I am encouraging. I have sent a couple of emails to Tara encouraging her. Uh, you know, it'd be really nice if something were to happen for the 50th anniversary. That would be a really cool thing. Uh, and we've already done, you know, we've done our interviews and, uh, you know, I've done a full hour, uh, with, uh, Carrie O'Quinn and, uh, I don't know if Mrs. Boss is around still, maybe we can find that link and put that in there or, or if Keely's still in there, we'll find that link. Cause, cause you could do the search. It was a, it was a, a video we posted here. This is from 2020, I think. 2019, yeah, 2020, I think, or 2022, somewhere in there. But there's an interview with Carrie O'Quinn talking about the beginnings of Starlog. And, you know, we talked to, you know, six or eight people. We talked to Tony Timponi. We talked to uh, uh, Lee Goldberg. We talked to uh, Robert Greenberger and David Dickel, uh, Daniel Dickholz, and, you know, a number of different people who wrote for Starlog. And I would love to bring back Starlog. I'd love to bring back Starlog myself. Can't do it. Because they own it. But I, it would be great to see Starlog come back. Um, and, you know, you, you have, you know, we talked about the, the fan activity uh, gazette that we're doing now with, the, with N3F. Uh, one of the people who has been in touch with us uh, about that is is the new current editor of Amazing Stories. And for those of you who are not familiar, Amazing Stories is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, still running science fiction publications. Amazing Stories was founded in 1927 by Hugo Gernsback. Uncle Hugo, Hugo, as in Hugo Award, Hugo Gernsback actually coined the phrase science fiction. Well, scientific fiction. Because he had this idea, because originally he, was, he published science magazines. And he said, what if we could use fiction to get people interested in science? And so scientific fiction became scientific fiction, became science fiction. Hugo Gernsback created this whole new genre of stories to get people interested in science. And Amazing Stories has been through various different iterations and different things. And for a while online, uh, the H2O podcast was actually published over there for a little bit before the, the Hugo Awards uh, debacle. And uh, since then, it's under new management, new ownership, and they're still, they're still going through and publishing short stories and short fiction. Amazing Stories is still around, and it would be great. It would be so fantastic to have Starlog back in that mix. You know, you've got Asimov's, you've got, you got Analog, you've got Astounding Fiction, you've got all these different things. We need Starlog to come back. Terra. Alright. Here we go. Michael joins us. Good to have you in the show. Welcome. How you doing? And hope, 
and hopefully my uh, uh, I won't kill your uh, st your streaming because <laughs> it seems it's always me when there's me and a few more people. Yeah, the the thing the thing though is that over the decades, I was going to say, is that uh, the uh, uniqueness of sci-fi being its own genre has has been reducing and reducing over the decades. Um, at least as far as print media goes. I mean, we had we um, we still have analog uh, analog, also known as astounding astounding uh, science fiction back in the day, mm -hmm. and then it was. Uh, and then it was um, analog science fact, science fiction, and then science fiction, science fact, and now it's just analog. But the thing is, it's the only. Um, if besides amazing, it's really the only big one left. Um, I believe Asimov's science fiction is also gone. No, it's so, still in publication. Oh, okay. Well, the, but the thing is, you used to, you know, and the thing is, it's like, yeah, yeah, for some of, for some of you uh, younger people, it's all like boring. You're living in the 50s. Hey, wait a minute. I wasn't even born in the 50s. I just <laughs> happened to like old stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, back, back, uh, decade, back decades before, you had um, quite literally a dozen or more magazines. You had uh, Worlds of If, you had, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the uh, magazine of science fiction and fantasy, I believe it was. Um, you had um, you had uh, Har uh, not Harlan Ellison. Um, he's always on my mind for some reason. Um, Michael Moorcock, uh, when he was doing uh, his editor, his, when he was doing his editorial ship in the '60s, and um, and so you had a whole huge, um, I guess you could say, industry. Oh but, yeah, well, I mean, you go back. Uh, you know, Orson Scott Card had one. Uh, you know, J John W. Campbell was was there with Astounding at the very beginning, and of course, everybody, everybody, you know, people have opinions about uh, uh, Campbell. about him. Yeah, uh, you had Omni Magazine, you had Cinefantastique, you have you know, a lot of these different uh, industry publications. You know, Asimov was just one of them. Galaxy was out, the Galaxy SF yes, was yes, there for yes, a while. Yes. So, yeah, it's it's been around for a very long time, all of these different things. And I would be it would be really nice to have a lot of that come back. I don't know how many titles the market would support these days because you're right. Uh, it, it, when you when it comes to science fiction and you look at some different things there in terms of what kinds of stories are being told, the default almost these days is an action picture or a superhero story or something like that, as opposed to something like uh, Interstellar, for example, from Christopher Nolan or or Contact or something like that. Yeah, there aren't there that many thinking stories anymore yes i would i would say like i would say like that that may be the case it's why i'm not it's personally it's not why i'm not reading a um analog anymore um analog was the analog was the one i got hooked on um because um uh when we went through my uh dad's uh stuff it was the one magazine that he had when he was uh, uh, that he was p picking up and reading while he was hospitalized before he died. So the thing is, you know, I picked on that, and mm -hmm. and then I went on to other science other science fiction. But yes, the tone the tone and the types of stories are also dictating. 
I stopped reading analog, for example, because um, the stories that I picked up after a few issues, um, I'm forgetting if it was five years ago or, or 10 years ago, something like that. But there were the, the issues that I picked up, they were all full of like um, post-humanism. I'm, I'm a pretty, pretty butterfly kind of story. <laughs> and, and it wasn't, and it wasn't, uh, and it wasn't like good stuff like Olivia yeah. Butler. You know, um, it was it was like kind of, it was kind of like like I said, way out there. Um, uh, uh, you know, kind you know, glorying in the um, glorying in the feeling of it. I guess you could say of being posthuman or transhuman, and not really exa- not examining the um, well. To be honest, for me, the traditional. Uh, things that were posted in science fiction regarding any topic, which was the uh, perhaps the societal impacts and changes that such a that such a technology or an idea would bring about. Um, Well, and see, I've always seen science fiction as a way for us as humanity. Let me let me paint with a very broad brush. Science fiction has always given us a way to do some self-examination. And, you know, you, you look at the original Star Trek, for example. Some of the stories that they told in that, uh, in that show would never have made it onto the network in a traditional contemporary setting. You know, there mm-hmm. were episodes there about race and about Vietnam and war. And, and, and if you had done that in a show like The Lieutenant, for example— or police story, it never would have made it past the rat network patrol. standards. <laughs> and, well, Rat Patrol, yeah, but Rat Patrol was very specific. No, you know what I that. mean. It's kind of like a, yeah, it, it's kind of weird. You can do some, you can do some society ana- analysis within the context of the genre, but yeah. science fiction was the one that let you do it for everything, so to speak. Yeah, and and early science fiction, I think, probably did it more than current science fiction. I mean, you mentioned Octavia Butler. I haven't read any of her stuff, but you 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 go back to people like Ursula Le Guin, for example, and some of the stories that she wrote had a lot to do with the condition of being human and gender and, and identity and, and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. it was done in a way that was specifically science fiction and let's take a look at this box from a completely different angle and that's what made it work and nowadays it's less about the idea of the thing and more about the identity of the thing and i think a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of contemporary stories miss the mark on that by focusing on the wrong aspect of your lead character, your scenario, your situation, your circumstances, right. your it's, setting. That's the, uh, that's again the the whole um, thing that you t- when you speak of in other contexts with regards to uh, writing quality. When you're talking about television shows and that, yeah. The um, the 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 uh, you know for science fiction, the emphasis in that has changed. For um, for uh, uh, TV shows, the tr- the uh, tr- the uh, traditional tr- the traditional tropes, which some people might object to, but you still have to have you know so, uh, you still have to have your start your your start your um, what do you call it? your uh, crisis. You, um, you still have to have the uh, you still have to have the high point, and you still have to have the denouement. 
So you know, it, it, instead instead of doing instead of doing it as a uh, any type of just adventure thing or a trope, uh, or you know, a trope of like a certain type of story. Now it's about oh, we have to talk about side issues in that. Well, you know, these side issues may have a place somewhere in that, but the thing is, not every single thing. Um, so again, you know, back with analog, it's like not, you know, it's all right. You know, you can have stories, uh, concerning, uh, speculation concerning identity and, and feeling in that. But again, the, the thing is not every single story. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, how is Starlog gonna, um, what, okay. Within the context of our society today. And perhaps uh, our fan various fandoms today. Since Starlog, um, I didn't read as much Starlog. Then I was more, you know, as I've said before, I'm I was always more of a tabletop gamer. Yeah. Uh, during the uh, 80s, during the 70s, though, I used to I used to grab Famous Monsters of Filmland all the time. Love that thing. And, so, and, and a I lot of people some... and a lot of people that grew up reading that ended up writing for Starlog. That's one of the things that yeah, was really interesting. Exactly. That commonality so, from that. Right. So the so the thing is, what in the modern, you know, what besides having remember berries, what do you think should be in a um, in a Starlog magazine today that would thrive same, in today? Same as what they're doing with Fangoria and same as what they did before. You know, the history of those two magazines was let's interview. We interview actors. We interview creators. We interview directors and producers and production designers and composers and costume designers and art directors. And we go behind the scenes of these different productions and we talk about you know the 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 uh, the types of stories that are being told and you do the an the analysis of you know the industry as a whole you do interviews with authors you do uh, your reviews of books and reviews of comic books there's a lot of different things that you can do with Starlog that they're already doing with current Fangoria which is the same kind of thing as what they were doing before and mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily have a time uh, a time-sensitive thing, you know, you've got to make sure that they're evergreen enough that if you're doing, say, a quarterly publication as opposed to a monthly, that you can still have stuff that's relevant in there. But, you know, let's let's game this out. Let's say, okay, we do a magazine. Let's interview Shauna Terpsik about her work as a costume designer on the various different Star Wars series. You know, we've talked to her. Mm -hmm. She's been on. She's been on uh, Ranker Pit before. We've talked to her about her work. She's been nominated for awards and all of that. And to talk to her in general about what it takes to do something like this, you could do an interview and a profile like that, and you could sit on it for a month or two or three, and it'd still be relevant. If I'm going to do a mm -hmm. review of a book that comes out now as opposed to three months from now when the, when the magazine prints – it's going to be a little outdated. Well, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I just posted a review over at the .com for Gemini Cell by Mike Cole, and that book was published in 2015. And mm -hmm. I'm just now reading it because our, our review pile dates back all the way to 2012, and I've still got stuff that hasn't been reviewed. So we're playing catch-up over on the .com with the various different yeah. things that we've had. I mean, we've had stuff in a pile because we're still getting new stuff. So we're having to, you know, juggle all of these different things. But for a magazine, 
you know, if you do, you could do fiction. Fiction doesn't have a, a deadline on it. Fiction doesn't have an expiration date. You know, if I get, if I manage to get a short story from, say, uh, Louise Simonson, for example, you know, mm-hmm. that story is just as good today as it would be three months from now as it would be six months from now, depending on, on when it gets published. So for right. Starlog, or, or the, Starlog to do something things, new, then it would be... Say, or things like the careers of, uh, like, career, you know, the interviews, like you said, for writers, basically their careers, if they've been involved in a particular uh, project, like you said, costume, the, your first example, costume designer for Star Wars. Okay. Um, um, and I'm saying that that and because i haven't picked up to be honest i don't have that great of an income so i haven't picked up on fangoria's thing uh how has fangoria on its been doing since its revival i you know i don't know the sales numbers but i i i see every now and again i see positive chatter on it um you know i'm and i'm looking at the covers i'm looking at some of the material that's in there the the fact that some of the original contributors are are back and and are a part of it. Tony Tamponi's been over there. Uh, a couple of other people. Um, names names escape me at the moment. But people who have contributed to the original Fangoria are with the current Fangoria. And I would imagine that at some point, if if Starlog comes back, some of the people who contributed back then would probably at least be guest contributors. I would hope. And yeah. at the same time, they could usher in a whole new generation of contributors, people who are, who could write for the current Starlog, that are people who have been doing stuff out online, on blogs, on, on anything like that, where they sit there and say, hey, I've, I've been a fan since I was five. I grew up reading Starlog, and now I get to write for it. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like the, the writers of the original Starlog, they grew up in, you know, Famous Monsters of Filmland, and, and other other uh, stuff like Asimov's and, and Analog and all of that. Well, now this new generation, we have that in our history as opposed to, oh, I, I, watched, I watched the Clone Wars. I could write about, you know, Foundation. <clears throat> you yeah. know, you got you to gotta have that background. You got to have that, that street cred, right. as it were. But I think you could do it. I think you could bring back Starlog as a quarterly magazine and do the same kind of thing that what Fango's doing, and it would do really well. And it would be on the subscription model because you're not going to get it on the on the newsstand anymore. You're not right. going to get it at the bookstore. That was going to be my next question. Yeah, it would be a subscription what would be model. The, what would be the form format? Would it be um, would it be subscri- subscription only? Would it be uh, print or uh, option for both? The part, you could do a digital edition, I, yeah. The part, because one of the things that I think is that um, while everything's got everything, you know, can be a la carte out, so to speak, in as they try as um, like like the idea of throwing around with regards to streaming services. What happens is that you end up having your own um, you end up having your own subscribers and viewership, but. The flip side is how do you attract new viewers, uh, new viewers, or in this case, new, how do you attract new subscribers mm-hmm. to, um, to uh, websites like that? Uh, is, it sim- is it based on w- simply word of mouth? Um, and my other, my examples for this is that, um, 
if I recall correctly, when I last checked for analog, and that's what I have to go for comparison, you could get your subscription. You could get your subscription issues. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing, but the thing is, uh, once once this uh, particular issue was done and it was only available and it's only available electronically, you can't recover an archive of it. You well, you know, as well, I say, not a legitimate one unless someone. Uh, Threw it, threw it in some unknown place uh, somewhere. Crap. Yeah, the the model the model that Fango's doing. I mean, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure they've got a digital edition that you could subscribe to. So you get different subscription tiers. One of them mm -hmm. would be, uh, you know, I could spend uh, however much it is. I think it's what 60, 60 a year or something like that, and get the physical print every quarter in my mailbox. They send it to me. There, mm -hmm. there could be, you know, you probably have another digital tier subscription level where I could, I could subscribe and I get it in my email, or I can download it, whether it's a, P, a, you know, a PDF or some kind of a document that way. Or, you know, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know if they sell them in singles. You know, hey, spend five bucks and get this, this quarter's edition or something like that. But you could do that same kind of thing. You know, and, and you look at now all of these crowdfunding models for, you know, all of the comic books, you know, all the indie comics, they're doing that kind of thing. We're going to have a physical book, but there's also the option if you don't want a physical book or, you know, the shipping is 600 times the price of the book, you can you can get <laughs> yeah. the digital edition. So that's that's a smart, you know, almost a common sense option there. For if you're putting together a book, whether it's a comic book or a magazine or a or a, a, a an anthology or even even just an original fiction, a novel or you know a short story collection or whatnot, you can have the physical media print on demand, or you make so many copies and you make them available, and then when they sell out, you go to a second run or something. But you also yeah, have to have a digital a digital uh, edition as well. And the digital edition is easy to archive. You just save it on a hard drive or two or three because right. that way you have backups. Right. Well, I, I guess the – yeah, and that, that was the um, – as I said, that was the thing that bothered me with uh, analog. Uh, besides it's the actual content itself, it's, it's not like I could go and pick up uh, – uh, previous issues based on the idea that so, that I'll end up reading somewhere. Oh, such and such actually did a good story in analog. <laughs> you know, um, so one thing that I always see is that, um, or that it's my understanding is that in terms of subscription services, um, people that one of the things is that. Uh, that people are people are always um, people always want the new thing and um, and perhaps are willing to pay for it, but they need to have some kind of gimme uh, to do a buy-in. For example, like a um, uh, for example, like an intro issue or a here you can you can look at our archive of such and such for free. Uh, do you think there's value in doing like the new thing for free and then afterwards, if you want to read the archives? you pay for or do the reverse where you pay for the you pay for the privilege of having the new thing and you can access some of the archives for
for free. No, you have the you, idea. The idea. The idea is wetting the people's ap- ap- appetite. Do you think? Do you, which is a more viable model? Do you think? Um, well, the thing is, uh, you have had is in in terms of Starlog specifically, you have had a free uh, collection that's been out there on the Internet Archive for a long time. Yes, and, I, I, as I stated in chat, I I picked it up uh, a few years ago when it was still allowed to. Yeah. So, but it was there illegally. So, I mean, you've got you've oops. got pirated copies because nobody at Starlog because Starlog was gone, and yeah. nobody. You know, I mean, there was still a company that owned it, but nobody was doing anything with it. And so, when it showed up on the Internet Archive, it was there because somebody had scanned all these things in and put it there. Not because it was anything official. Now, when they do this now, and they do the digital archive of the magazine at starlog.com or wherever it is it's going to be, yeah, I would expect that you know, if it were me, I would probably put most of the archive in a in an easy to consume place maybe not behind a paywall here here this is here's here's the history of the thing and then have the subscription for all of the new stuff uh and put all yeah. of the new stuff behind a paywall but every now and again something from the current magazine like EV magazine does this and and a couple of others where you have the you have maybe one or two articles that you take out from behind the paywall and you put it out there and say, hey, we just posted this in our October issue. And if you want to read more, you know, than just this article, if you want to get the whole issue, click here to buy the issue. So you could do that as not necessarily as a loss leader, but as an incentive. Here's what you're missing if you don't buy the rest of the magazine. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of different ways that you could do that. I mean, I could you could make the argument that the that the archive has enough value that you could monetize it and put it behind a paywall. Um, I don't know that that's the best thing to do, uh, and I haven't looked at uh, Fangoria's site right now to see what they're doing with their Fango archive. I would imagine that whatever they're doing with Fang- Fangoria for the for the for the original archive, they'll probably do the same thing with Starlog. Now, having discussed all of that, having said all of that, there is another possibility here. There's a possibility. It may not be that they're putting out an archive of Starlog magazine. It could very well be that, that Tara sits there and goes, hey, coming in December, new Starlog magazine. It could very well be that they revive the magazine the same as they did with, with Fango. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But what if it did? What if they sit there and said, hey, you want more Starlog? Here you go. Because then you could package Starlog and Fangoria in a twofer subscription and you monetize the both of them and say, yeah, Mm -hmm. Fangoria is $60 a year for four issues. Starlog is $60 a year for four issues. But you could get both of them for... 90 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever, and get both magazines quarterly yep. in your mailbox. What a deal. And not only that, but you can get the archive to all of the other 374 issues that were published back in the day. Yep, that, that would be that would be cool and I would eagerly 
I will eagerly await that when my social security finally kicks in. <laughs> well, because I sent Tara an email. I said, hey, I saw your post. I'm, I'm assuming this is just going to be an archive of the magazine. I haven't heard anything back from her. I don't expect to. But, but you know, my guess is it's going to be an Internet archive. But if they decide to finally revive the magazine in a in a print edition in a new quarterly that's coming out, same as Fangoria, there are a lot of people that are going to be happy about that. Who knows how many? But there are going to be a lot of people. Uh, let me real quick uh, address you know Dave's in the chat uh, saying hi to everybody. Um, Death Angel Shadow says, "Imagine that analog now in digital." <laughs> Uh, Don, Don Ranger powers talking, uh, talking in the chat and dropping in and saying, hi, uh, you know, and it's, you know, road vagabond life over on Odyssey makes a good point. People need to hang on to physical media and non DRM media to archive stuff before the woke army changes them. That's the other thing too, yes. is, you know, digital copies can be altered. Um, original format stuff. I mean, look at what they're doing with Roald Dahl. Look what they're doing with Agatha Christie. They're doing it, you know, they're doing it with in Fleming, you know, James Bond stories. All of these things, that's why you need to go to the used bookstore and buy the older copies of these things because they could change it. They could, they, and, and, and you've got an entire generation of the, of kids out there that, wouldn't know because they haven't read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They haven't read Foundation. They haven't read Chronicles of Narnia. They haven't read um, The, the Illustrated Man. Now. Yeah, any any of that <laughs> stuff. Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, any of it. I mean, it doesn't even have to be genre. 1984, Fahrenheit 451, uh, all of those things. But, you know, just literature in general. You know, the, the, the Three Musketeers, the, the Count of Monte Cristo. You need to get old copies of this stuff and keep them because the Internet is full of mayhem and chaos and evil. And there and needs the to be some and, balance to that. And the perfect, perfect sci-fi example for all of us, if you remember... The uh, the original movie Rollerball, yeah, and the one and the one scene where the guy where um, I think it was James Conn goes uh, to uh, goes to the library or something like that, and the and the the guy there basically says, uh, "Oops, we lost the 13th century." Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I forgot which century it is, but the thing was that the whole um, attitude that. Eh, it doesn't really matter. Well, and you, that's and, a, and that is a that uh, is as bad as um, a, as lo altering the information, just losing it yeah. entire the information or the the feeling of what these people did then or whatever yeah. century. Um, it takes away from I would think from our humanity. Well, it's like uh, uh, in in the time machine when uh, when the time traveler goes forward. And he goes forward all these thousands of years, and you've got the Morlocks, and you've got the, the kids up, up top on the surface, yeah. and all of the information has been has been lost. Uh, you know, don't you have any books? Don't you Did you learn anything or anything like that? Ooh. And they're like— You mean the 1960 version, right? Yeah, we the George Powell thing. Books. Yeah, yeah, we have not, books, not, and they open it up, and the whole thing falls apart. And, and, he's, yeah. and he realizes when he gets to the machine, the teaching machine, 
the archive that's there and realizes how much was lost in all of the wars. He's like, you, you people, you people, what's going to happen next? Y'all don't mm-hmm. know anything. You know, it's, and, and it was a very sad state of affairs for him because he's like, oh, I, I couldn't live in this world. You know, it, this is completely out of place, and there's no way that I'm going to be able to to understand, you know, to have to make these people understand, you know. And and when he goes back, and he realizes, well, I'm not going to fit in here anyway. I want to go back to the future and and be with the girl. He takes yeah. he takes certain books with him, and they right. leave that and, question and, and, at the end. What books do you think you would Alan, take? Alan Swift asked the question. Yeah, what books? Uh, 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 with his uh, with his brogue there, what what books did he take? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What books would you take? How how do you completely reeducate society? Because we're kind of at that point right now with the with the social media being the way it is, humanity has been dumbed down on purpose. I think because it makes them easier to control. You know, it's just like right. what we were talking about earlier when Judah was on. He was talking about you know people need, people like to be led. People like to be told what to do, and it's easier when they're not educated. Mm-hmm. It's easier when it's, they don't have information in their heads that makes them, you know, gives them the ability to do some critical thinking. And they're going, well, wait a minute. I don't know about this. Why would I be doing this? We don't want people asking those questions. You just do. Right. That's what that uh, I had posted my uh, little quip in chat whoever wrote the lines for Loki and Avengers <laughs> and, uh, and also for, um, for uh, winter soldier was a genius, uh, yeah. you know, that we, that, that we would set, that we would sacrifice, um, you know, that we were born to be led. And also of course the sacrifice for uh, that we would sacrifice everything for our security. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in, including our own personal freedoms. Uh, and that's so, and again, as I said, that's why I don't, that's, th- um, in turn, and I know how you feel about AI. And th- as I've said, as long as we, as long as we have humans have the ability to make the final decision and cut things off, then, um, then we still, then we still are hu- humans and still have, are still dominant over AI. And it, if things that take away from that from that decision making, you know, I that you know, I think that that's bad. Yeah, uh, it's or as they go, you know, in capital letters, whenever you see uh, people typing up their um, manifestos, and this is a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, something that is not a bad thing. Let me let me do this because we've been talking about Starlog. We've been talking about bringing stuff back. You know, Fangoria. We have talked about a number of times here a print edition of stuff of what we do, and mm-hmm. uh, for a long time I've debated, debated, and commiserated and agonized over what you'd call it. And I think I finally came up with something, and uh, you're—I'm uh, not going to be able to pull it up here, but I can pull it up here. So, so Michael, you're probably going to have to look at the YouTube f- thing. But here's a mock-up cover of what I think might actually be our version of Starlog. If you take Starlog and you add some fiction to it, you'd get this. Now, I think Fantastic Encounters. So we're going to end up calling it, if we do this, I'm still on the fence about it, 
But here is the here is a mock-up of the cover, the logo there in okay, the Okay, I see it. Now, short story, story author contributor one. Yeah, so so nice, nice and clean so far. The the title, Fantastic Encounters, oddly enough, apparently looks like it's never been used. Now there's an Encounters magazine, and there's all sorts of fantastic fill-in-the-blank magazines, but n- I there's not a record anywhere of fantastic encounters so i think we found our title of our book uh and i think i think uh we've got some stuff and is that that a um question uh is that a space 1999 ish kind of uh font for the encounters word well it's it's not space 1999 specifically it's kind of a digital you know font of sorts uh but yeah Yeah, yeah i mean yeah, it it's it's it conveys no, no, the, the science fiction kind of like the member berries. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and I know Don's Don's upset in the in the chat about the cancellation of iCarly. Don, let me tell you, that's not going to be the only cancellation that we see. Uh, in the aftermath of the the writer strike and the 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 actor strike, there are a number of deals uh, that are going to die. Uh, and they're going to go away because either they're too expensive or they're too politically you know, problematic or they're deals with people like J.J. Abrams who have got all of this money that they're getting paid and not putting out any product, uh, not producing results. So there's going to be a lot of different things that you're going to see in the, in the Hollywood landscape change over the next six months. A lot of deals are going to die. A lot of shows are going to get canceled. A lot of movies are going to go away. There's a lot of stuff that's going to happen. There's going to be a big shakeup in the aftermath of all of this stuff because the studios realize they don't have the money to do all of this stuff. So budgets are going to come down, hopefully, yeah. and and the output, the the amount of output is going to change. So you know, it, it iCarly is just one of many. Uh, can- cancellations and deals that are that are that are going away. So, and yeah, Cameron predicted it. A number of other yeah, people have talked about add, it. It's add, it's one of those things where you know we saw this coming when the thing started. So, uh, Dave says, "Fantastic Encounters tickles all of your analog hotspots, and those you didn't know you needed satisfied." Okay, I guess uh, that's that's an ad right there. You know, we'll we'll put that in the ad copy. <laughs> But I think you know there there are there are opportunities there uh, for stuff like you know a Starlog revival. Another uh, yeah, there are still magazines out there. There are still fanzines that are out there. We talk about that a lot with with Fan Activity Gazette. So it's going to have you know there's some potential there, and we'll probably do the crowdfunding to do this. And of course we got to figure out: do we pay for it first? Do we raise the money and then pay for it, or whatnot? I've had some interest from some different people, uh, names you would recognize uh, as contributors. I'm not going to say because we don't have anything in place yet. You know, I've got an idea for for the cover artist. Uh, who's do you think got some really there would be stuff? Uh, do you think there'd be any value in uh, uh, contacting some of the other uh, people who have uh, uh, been in Kickstarter projects like that, where you have multiple contributors? I mean, the co- the comic book guys like Eric July and and the guy who does uh, uh, what uh, I forgot um, Clownfish TV uh, with, with his publishing pursuits. I, I would think that they're mostly just uh, them and themselves, and then maybe one other person. 
uh, involved in uh, the um, production of the art. So they might they might have, uh, but there might there should be other ones around where you could find out. Well, how did you guys do it? And oh it yeah, work out yeah, yeah. We've we've had conversations with people. I've talked to you know I've talked okay. to a number of of uh, the indie people, the the crowdfunding you know people using crowdfunding models. You know, I've talked to the guys over at Fund My Comic. You know, Luke Stone and that gang. Um, I've talked to RJ at Critical Blast about you know helping with fulfillment and stuff. So yeah, those conversations are ongoing pretty much all the time in in, in various different stages. Yeah. So yeah, There's, we're um, we're getting there. We're we're just right now we're yeah. just kind of putting some feelers out to see about you know what this thing would cost if we were going to do it because we we'd pay all the contributors, we'd pay you know we'd pay for the fiction, we'd pay for the for the for the think pieces and the essays and the artwork and all of that. So we got to figure out what right. it's going to cost. And yeah, then there's from a, there, my the example I was going to provide was uh, was uh, for again. Tabletop gaming products also do Kickstarters. Yeah, and what happens is that the way they're able to uh, they're able to generate um, massive amounts of uh, money towards funding their particular things is um, they have you know they have uh, a reward incentive kind of structure in the um, Kickstarter, uh, and also one of the other things that the um, people get is that they get the uh the wonderful contributor credit that takes up a page or two by itself depending on the number of people right. who contributed to the kickstarter in the first place yeah now, you know no no content no content contribution just simply here take here take my money and make it well and i think there's <laughs> definitely room for an acknowledgement of some sort for everybody who does support the thing but at the same time too you know, if you're putting this thing together and if you pay for all of it ahead of time for the crowdfunding, you're you're basically mm -hmm. selling pre-orders. You're not necessarily getting investors right. and that kind of thing. Uh, Road Vagabond Life has a good point. Put a no AI content guarantee sticker on the cover. <laughs> well, we well, have, yeah, you want to ensure your copyright. Remember, we, we what have I, put what that. I told you, yeah. Well, we have put that on our Instagram and our various different socials where you know people, you know, we'd say you know we don't have any AI content here. And uh, that's uh, that's the rule. We're not going to do it. Uh, I I I think that AI generative AI is uh, is is cheating. It's it's copy it's copying some other people's work in order to come up with something new. And I think that's uh, you know ethically and morally questionable. Um, the legal aspects of it still have to be sh shaken out a little bit as far as, you know, copyright law and that kind of thing. I mean, it's a whole new aspect of it. But personally, I think that it's more problematic and it's and it's more trouble than it's worth because eventually you're going to get caught uh, doing something you, you shouldn't ought to do. Um, so anyway, uh, Death Angel Shadows is a lot of the RPG publishers are kickstarting for stuff they already have written as well. So they have something to show right off the bat and speeds the, the two print process. Well, yeah. And, well, and Eric, is there's contributors are the, um, excuse, I was going to say their big contributors are usually the artists. Um, yeah. that, that, because yeah, the, the writers can write the, the game mechanics are already written and you can uh, apply your own tweets, whatever the uh, con the content, the storyline, the uh, the uh, all the um, I guess you could say all the icing and flavor text. That's a lot of what the um, primary 
uh, designer or writer rights. Yeah. It's usually it's usually all the other stuff that comes afterwards. Uh, artist, the artist paying for the artist for to make the uh, books look really, really glossy and fancy. Um, and and I don't mean in terms of publication. I mean like real, you know, really, really nice artwork. Um, pr uh, pr proofreaders, and then. Um, and depending on whether they get paid or not, uh, uh, proofread, excuse me, play testers, play testers, you know, they're yeah. cheap enough for free, yeah. but there's no equivalent in, uh, I would think, in publishing a story. Well, or, and, or publishing and, a magazine. You know, to Death Angel's point, the, you know, this idea of having everything done ahead of time. I mean, Eric July was doing that kind of thing, where it's, you know, everything's paid for, everything's done, the book, all, all the, the only thing left is send it to the printer and package it up and send it. So, you know, there there's a lot of different options that we're looking at as far as that goes. Like I said, I haven't even decided if we're going to do it or not because, you know, things being the way it is. Uh, but that's how it is. All right, Michael, thanks very much for calling in and uh, and sharing your sure. thoughts. It was a good conversation today. Speaking of social media, I'm going to throw up all of our stuff. That We are still on socials. So everybody can uh, everybody can can connect with us and all the different things and you know the different channels and whatnot. So you can you can be there for all of that. And uh, I don't know when we're going to be back to do anything again, but uh, it, what, oh, gee, Mister, yeah, right. Uh, Mindy did put the link to the Fan Activity Gazette in the chat over on YouTube. Uh, tnfff.org is the uh, is the the website for that, and just click on the zines tab, and you'll find uh, the Fan Activity Gazette, and we're working on the October issue now, and yes, Road Vagabond Live. Remember, you two hate you. Um, that's going to do it for us today, folks. Remember. The government hates you. The media lies to you, and there are four lights. This has been a presentation of SciFiForMe.com. Copyright 2023 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio. 